It's Conrad Thompson, and you're listening to Foley is Pod. And, of course, we couldn't do it without the Hall of Famer himself, Mr. Mick Foley. Mick, how are you, man? Thank you, Conrad. It's, it's great to be one half of the podcast that is sweeping the nation. Tag team champions, if you will. Uh, and, and that's a, a nice topic for today. We're going to be talking about some tag titles. Your very first WrestleMania. Yeah. Does it feel like it's been 25 years since 1997? It does not yeah. for me. In some time, in some ways, it feels like it's been a blink of an eye. Uh, but in other ways, yeah, I have to go back and realize 25 years. I've got a lot of anniversaries yeah. coming up. Technically, uh, this was my first WrestleMania because I debuted the day after WrestleMania 1996. We've already covered yeah. the whole idea. I got my um, information package that said Mutilator on it. <laughs> Uh, WrestleMania then is not what it is now. Right. It's not WrestleMania week. It was WrestleMania weekend. You'd get there probably on a Thursday, uh, and then you were off to the next town on a Monday. You didn't come back and do the same city right. like you do now, which is great for the, the men and women. I have to resist the urge to say it's great for the guys. Right. If I say guys from this moment on, you know, the guys is guys and gals of everybody in the dressing room. And that was always really difficult to come, to peak for emotionally for your WrestleMania match, get back in your car either that night or the next day. Usually you drive the next day because of the post-WrestleMania party. But the party made it even more difficult because now you have to try to peak after the party where yeah. you've had the world's best shrimp cocktail, <laughs> a directive of Mr. McMahon. And so it is a better deal today for the guys and women in the dressing room. Uh, but WrestleMania was still a big deal. Uh, I watched the first one. I watched 96 from the crowd. Saw uh, Brett and Sean Iron Man. How did you crowd. watch it from the crowd? Uh, Throw a baseball hat on? And- well, I had the baseball hat on. And also, I don't think as many WWF fans were as familiar with Cactus Jack as you might think. Right. Um, there were some crossover fans. But it was, uh, uh, this 1996, I'd estimate about 25% of the WWF wow. fans. You know, the internet, well, there wasn't really an internet fans, but you're sure. talking about your, uh, your sheet readers, uh, your insiders, they knew. I'd say about 25% of the audience knew. And I think I went up there and watched from the crowd just for that final match. And because that's the match everyone wanted to see, yeah. they're not focused on you. And I think I was in the, on the hard, you know, hard camera area. Uh, where the WWF would put friends and family. Right. Uh, but it wasn't a situation where you had a suite filled with 100 people. Right. It was just me and somebody who worked in uh, PR at the time, and we took in that. I've always loved to watch the big matches in person. It's different. So even when I was the, the, the commissioner, the GM, if something was big, I would go out there so I could absorb the atmosphere. And feel it. Yeah, I'd be part of it. So I'm glad we're talking about it. Eventually, we probably were bound to. But I've developed a reputation online for hating that match. And I love Shawn Michaels. Oh, the, the, I love Bret Hart. Yeah, the Iron yeah. Man match. But that WrestleMania 12 match, I just feel like the concept of it being an Iron Man match made it less fun for me. I think some of the fun of wrestling is, is he going to hit his big when. move? This yeah. can be it. Yeah. And the edge of the seat anticipation is gone if I know, well, just watch the last five minutes and, and you got it. And so... I found myself fast-forwarding that match to the end, 
And I miss a lot of great action. I miss yeah. a lot of great stuff. But I just think from a psychology standpoint of taking the fans on a ride of, oh, he got it. No. Because even if he does, it ain't over. Yeah. And the idea that it could end at any minute, I don't. I think the Iron Man stipulation is maybe the worst. Not, I don't mean the silliest, like so-and-so on a pole, Judy Bagel on a pole or whatever. But uh, <laughs> the Iron Man thing, I, I think any other... Uh, g- g- stipulation would have made that match more enjoyable. What say you? An hour is a long time for all but the most diehard fans. Hour is a long time. Yeah. So I look at like the NXT classic that Bailey and Sasha had. Yes. Thirty minutes. I like a thirty-minute Iron Man. Yeah. Iron Woman. Uh, I also think I would have liked to have seen more falls. Yes. The one to nothing. Oh man, you know I'd like to see three to two. I don't know what it was like behind the scenes if uh, the both men were resistant to you know to uh, losing a fall or if they thought that would make uh, the the one less meaningful. Maybe I would say that in a, you know soccer and for the international audience, football, I'd rather see a three-two game yes. than a one-nothing game. Yes, uh, I, I don't think it reduces the importance of the three and the two. I remember when I was in WCW, we had a. Uh, uh, like a Texas death match type of tag team match in uh, Chicago at the UIC Pavilion. And that was a pretty strong market for us. And it was uh, me and Rick Rude against uh, Sting and and Ricky Steamboat. And so we're talking some, you know, some major talent out yeah. there and me, right? <laughs> <laughs> uh, but we started to try to put something together and uh, came to the falls and nobody really wanted to drop a fall. And uh, I was like, you can beat me as many times as you want, because I'm going to continue to get up, and that will only make... I don't know if I shared that with the guys, my feeling like, oh, I had beat me five, pin me five times. I'm not saying that. That means I'm, yeah, I will get up four times. And so I always, I, I hate to think that ego got in the way of that, but... Uh, I thought it was a great match. Oh, for sure. Great match. Um, I love the, the super kick on the... Was oh, it, yeah. You know, was it the timekeeper? It uh, looks like he put all of it into that probably, super kick, too. probably did, right? Yeah. Probably, you you uh, relieve the recipient of the need to know how to sell by yes. putting all of it into that. You take yes. that out of his hand. Um, and so I thought it was a great match, and it was built up the childhood dream, and Sean had the amazing entrance. It was a moment, guys. for sure. Yeah, I, I would. I, I think, yeah, maybe they would have been better served by a different stipulation. It feels like to me if it was a, a 3-0 Super Bowl, like a great defensive battle Super yeah. Bowl, but when it was over, people would say, well, that sucked. I'd rather it be 27-24. Yeah. It's still a three-point victory, but let's put some points on the board. I'm with you. But I, I do like your approach from, hey, uh, beat me four times. I'm going to keep getting up. But that makes you look like a Superman, right? You just so keep I coming. felt about it. I was surprised that um, I didn't have more cooperation. And so that was the night of many defeats for me, and I felt like it only made me stronger. When do you think that changed in the business, or has it changed? 
because it does feel like wins and losses in time, everybody sort of to come around to your way of thinking. Well, you can't you can't get beaten like a drum right. continually. The message has to be sent from the company in some way that this is a guy worth paying attention to. Right. And you've seen, like, I feared just uh, going back a few weeks, uh, Finn Balor came out without music on Raw. And I yeah. went, oh, God, this, that's the problem with having a great entrance is that when you no longer have a great entrance, uh, a major arrow's been taken out of your quiver. And yeah. so I was shocked when he actually won the title from Damian Priest. But there's an example. Of, oh, man, they took it. They, they took that. Uh, they took that big entrance away from him. That's a signal to the fans that we're not supposed to take him as seriously. When in truth, it was probably just a timing right. deal, especially given that he won the championship. But when I went into WE, when I went into WWF at the time, let's call it what it was, yeah. right? I think you're allowed to prep for that at the time. Um, there was still the old timer feeling that you can't get beaten on television. Mm-hmm. That. Um, I read you know, Honky Talk Man probably this day believes, you know, you can't get beaten on TV. And I, I remember Harley saying to me to watch it because I was losing a lot. You know, he said, you have to watch those wins and losses. And then you also get yourself in a position like when I was in uh, TNA and then switched over and did a, a few matches with, uh, oh, no, I was with WWE from 2005, 2008, did a handful of matches. TNA, I did, uh, you know, a handful of pay-per-views and some TVs. And there was a young man, uh, Chris Giordano, who lived in Seaford, uh, New York, who I actually name-dropped on Raw. And WWE wanted to know about this guy. Like, what's this? Well, he was a young man with uh, cerebral palsy. And um, uh, I used to go with my kids to his house. And we watched the pay-per-views. And he had an elevator, you know, that, uh, and my kids that might as well been at an amusement park because they love going up and down in the elevator. Uh, and so Chris would get concerned about my matches and get upset when I lost until his dad told me he came to realize that I always lost. <laughs> so that he wasn't as upset about it. Uh, and I think that's where you run the danger. If you're no longer a threat to win yeah. and you can't uh, help people suspend their disbelief because they know or at least they feel and have reason to feel that you are going to lose that match, that's not good. But uh, I think I think things started to change when the wrestling wars heated up, when there was more of an emphasis on good matches mm-hmm. taking place on a regular basis. Because most of the uh, viewers had grown up in an atmosphere where they watched squash matches. Yes, absolutely. And a win was a win, and a loss was a loss. There was really no gray area. There were there were top guys. There were uh, and there was enhancement talent. There were gray gray area guys. Like when I was growing up watching WWF, it was a uh, like an SD Jones might score a victory. And as he got older, as some of the guys got older, like Chief J Strongbow. You'd see, uh, you know, an instant spark, and you'd see the sleeper hold, and then the match would be over fairly quickly. But he was still Chief J. Strongbow. That's right. So, uh, but I think when when the wars heated up, and you had to put good matches on on a regular basis, there was more of a uh, you could accept that good wrestlers could lose matches. And I think uh, as you uh, ingratiated yourself, and hopefully that's the right name, you know, as you made yourself part of someone's uh, Monday night or Tuesday, whatever the case might be, 
and they felt like they knew you, in some cases, losing could actually help you. Yeah. Uh, I think you go back to uh, uh, when Becky Lynch had her big breakthrough when she attacked Charlotte. And uh, and somebody in the house, I think I was with my family. I don't know who I was watching the pay-per-view at which house. It might have been at Chris's house. Somebody said, why are they saying you deserve it to Charlotte? They were chanting. I said, no, I think they're chanting you deserve it to Becky. I said, well, what does she deserve? I said, I think they understand that this is a moment, that this is a push. And so you do get that goodwill accru- accrued from uh, being treated I think it's a fine line because you're not doing as well as you, the company's not treating you as well as you feel, as you feel that talent should be treated. You're on one side of the line, getting beaten like a drum, you're on the other side, and then you lose, you just uh, lose that emotional connection to that person and you yeah. cast them off. I think in the same reason why in when you're a young man or young woman and you have crushes and you're falling in love for the first time, you don't put your heart out there if you know it's going to get stomped on. Yes. Right? You'll take a chance in love if you think there's a reason. And I, I this is probably a, a foolhardy, uh, you know, comparison because men and women in love do ridiculously dumb things. Yes. But uh, there are times when you don't put your heart out of the line because you know it's going to get crushed. Right. So you don't make that emotional connection with that character or you lose that emotional connection because you know you're going to get hurt in the long run. I like it. So today we're talking about WrestleMania 13, and you said at the top of the show, hey, WrestleMania back then is not what it is now. When do you remember that changing? I mean, 12 and 13? For me, it changed in 98 with Mike Tyson. Really? You know, I remember being in a Legends Roundtable type of thing, and I was roundly criticized by the table I had because I said that the Tyson appearance was the biggest celebrity appearance because it took WrestleMania to that next level. And yeah. the guys were like booing me as for insinuating that WrestleMania wasn't always huge. But you check the buy rates. I think ninety seven, that first one I was in was way down. Way down. Like way it down. was like a, a percentage point or two above what a normal pay per view would have it was almost in in your house territory. I don't wanna, you know, disparage mania by saying it was all the way in your house, but it was approaching in your house numbers. Uh, and I think it changed when uh, everything just fell into place. You had a major, you know, major um, crossover celebrity in Tyson, who was also a huge wrestling fan growing up to the point where when I first met Mike, he was hitting me with trivia that I couldn't remember about my own career. Wow. He was talking about, you know, mankind play with the rats. And, uh, and I couldn't even remember when I played with the rats. And I had, oh, that's right. That was my vignette when I was Mankind and I was in the dungeon and it was uh, Corny's, you know, Corny's pet rat that I named George. Uh, so you had Tyson, who was a huge wrestling fan, with an angle that worked, with a character in Steve that was just firing on all cylinders and you had the angle that got played everywhere yeah when he shoved mike and and he was made to look like uh you know steve was made to look like a genuine and he was a genuine superstar yeah but he was made to look to the general public like a genuine superstar. legitimately that to me is when everything changed well, and they did that crazy public workout with all those folks, with Sean and 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 Tyson tying up Austin and showing him the belt. But there were, 
I don't know what the expectation was, but Bruce says it was a multiple. You know, so maybe they expected a few thousand and it was several thousand. But to me, it feels like WrestleMania 2001. I think that's when they started doing access. They had the dome. So no longer were they running arena shows. They're yeah. running a dome. Oh, one feels like maybe the first time where this is bigger. And is that when it started becoming a week? I think so. Yeah. It started yeah. becoming a week. And that's where people made the pilgrimage. I, I, I'm sure there were people coming around from around the world. Sure. But prior to then. But, uh, you know, when you go to WrestleCon, I would say 50% plus of the people you meet are from outside the country. Isn't that crazy? It's, yeah, it's crazy, and it's really telling as to how big it is. Uh, I, I I did an ap- appearance uh, on the night of the Hall of Fame, and with WWF's blessing, although they said next year we'd like to have it at the Hall of Fame, but it was a surprise for Terry Funk that Gabe Sapolsky uh, arranged. You know, Gabe was a big fan of mine, a big fan of Terry's, great creative mind. And so I did the surprise for Terry, and it was super cool. You know, but Terry wasn't expecting it. He was emotional. But most people are thinking they're not expecting a WWE guy to show up at a, you know, at a smaller show. Right. Um, but that, the reason I bring that up is because uh, there was probably 2001 or a few years later that it started becoming this pilgrimage, not just for fans, but for wrestling companies yes. around the world and now you see the number of uh, guests at like a WrestleCon. It's in like the hundreds, like 120, 130. Some of them bigger names than others, but 130 people almost uh, la- largely being flown in yeah. by a promoter. Sometimes they take a loss. Sometimes they make money. But it's just this idea that it's become this a meeting spot for the entire world. Oh, the reason I brought up the funk, the funk uh, show is because I got on the mic and I said something positive about WWE and it got some booze. And I was like, hey, hold on a second. Like you can choose to like and not like what you want, but I think we need to accept that that's the reason everyone's here, yes. you know, without 100%. that. And that doesn't mean you can't go and enjoy every show, but WWE. But Support what you like. Yeah, yeah, but they're the reason we're gathered here today. Yes. Uh, that was uh, almost like a church. Ladies <laughs> and gentlemen, we're gathered here today. Welcome back. This segment of Foley is Pod is presented by Zen Nicotine Pouches, the simpler way to experience nicotine satisfaction and enjoy lasting change on your terms. Zen Nicotine Pouches are fresher, simpler way to enjoy nicotine that's helped millions of people achieve lasting change by offering smoke-free and spit-free satisfaction. I don't know about you, but there have been times in my life where I needed to make a change. Like when I turned 40, I knew I needed to make a change, but I just wasn't ready yet. I'm sure a lot of smokers and dippers out there can relate. And Zen understands there isn't just one right time to make a change. Everyone's timeline is a little different. Everyone's on their own journey. So whenever you feel like you're ready to take that first step toward change, Zen will be there for you with the right strength, the right flavor, at the right time. If you're thinking about making a change and want to learn more today, check out Zen Nicotine Patches at Zen.com. That's Z-Y-N.com. Warning, this product contains nicotine. Nicotine is an addictive chemical. So your journey to WrestleMania here 13 really begins at the Royal Rumble. You and Terry Funk are going to brawl with each other out of the ring, which distracts the referees and helps Steve end up winning the Royal Rumble. 
Uh, and you're doing this in San Antonio, wrestling against your wrestling yeah. mentor yeah. Uh, in a f- huge freaking dome. That had to be a cool <laughs> moment for you. The crazy thing is you can only remember a certain amount of things. Right. I think we've covered this before. You tend to remember the things that all went really well, the things that were really bad. This is an indication that this fell somewhere in the middle for me. Because I remember every moment of the next year, which is the the three entries. Yes. And I remember starting out the match with Terry Funk and then, you know, doing a number on The Rock, who somehow, to this day, I don't know, I believe he rolled between the second and third ropes with the garbage can on his head, which means he had to intuitively know where the ropes were. Yes. Uh, so you can go back and maybe my memory's off, but I remember The Rock doing some amazing stuff with a garbage can on his head and no <laughs> visibility. Uh, so he was a phenom in that way, knowing his way around the ring. The year before, I I cannot really remember that I was in there with Terry. I don't have that big of a recollection at all of being in that rumble, even though it was my first rumble, and I should. And it was in San Antonio, and that's when Sid... Huge crowd. Yeah, huge crowd. 48,000, somewhere around there. Yeah. That was Sid and Sean, yes. because San Antonio is Sean's hometown. Um, but I don't, I wish I did. I, I know, uh, you know, when Steve won that thing, that's what everybody wanted to see. Yeah. Right. I mean, Steve's character was really catching fire at that point, And then we'd see that pay off at WrestleMania in a huge way, but I don't remember too much about being part of it. <laughs> so, uh, this is where I should creatively pretend I do. No, no, no. Okay. I mean, here's yeah. the thing. That's what I wanted to talk about is it doesn't feel like your creative is really that great here. <laughs> You know, I mean, yeah. you debuted right yeah. after WrestleMania 12, and you had this awesome feud right out of the gate with The Undertaker. Yeah. And um, now as we, we get geared up for what looks like WrestleMania season, it's kind of hard to identify who's your opponent going to be. And I wonder how much of that in your mind changes when Sean lost his smile. Like if WrestleMania 13 was going to go on the way maybe we originally thought, it's going to be a rematch from 12 with Brett and Sean. Do you think that would have changed what you were doing? Would that have meant more with The Undertaker? Because clearly when everything changes, it becomes Undertaker Sid and it becomes Brett and Austin. And we know how it worked out. But I can't imagine you were supposed to be tagging with Vader to take on Brett and Owen and it feel, or, or Davey and Owen. It feels like something changed. Would you agree? Uh, yeah. Keep in mind, WWE's always booked around their top two or three matches. Of course. Even at Mania. And then you try to... You try to get people in some meaningful matches. Um, and I had ha- I had a great run with Undertaker working at or near the top of the card. But up until the, the, the you know, the famous interview with JR, the sit-down interview, I think, which was April 2017, I hadn't quite captured Vince. I got you. He appreciated that I was somebody who was valuable. I mean, I think that can be illustrated by the... Uh, the Montreal screw job, yeah. you know, where even after he took the punch from Brett and uh, I decided to leave the company for a day, uh, that uh, when I got off the phone with my wife, there was a message and it was Vince. It's like, wow, he thinks enough of me to call me after this traumatic ordeal. Like, in, and then I was welcomed back into the fold after I, my wife perused my contract, found out that I basically breached it. 
couldn't work anywhere in the world for five years, at which point, you know, I, if I could have gotten to Messina, New York on my hands and knees, I probably would have done it. <laughs> but I was accepted back into the fold uh, with no questions asked. But even that was a few, four or five months before that interview that changed everything. So I don't think Vince was fully on board with the mankind character or with me as the man behind it. I do appreciate they were trying to make me uh, fit me into the mix, but I'd say creative had been, it had been lacking a little bit, but at the same time been lacking, I'd been working house shows with Shawn Michaels. Yeah. So I guess just to add context, I mean, the thing that I think oftentimes gets sort of glossed over, Paul Bear separating from the undertaker to be with you can't be overstated what a milestone that was yeah. they had never seen it before right. and that's august so then the next month you're in the freaking main event against Shawn michaels in yeah. philadelphia yeah, yeah. Uh, and then there's the crazy buried alive thing in october but then it starts to feel like as we march through a few months it's like okay yeah. now what you're looking yeah. for the next big i literally thing. started my i did my angle with the undertaker the day after may say april 1st yeah so, you know don't know but within a couple of days right and so uh, we worked that angle to the point where I had my first pay-per-view match at uh, King of the Ring. That was Milwaukee, Wisconsin. And beat him. Uh, beat him. Uh, came back against Henry Godwin, I think, in Vancouver the next month. Then I had the August uh, Boiler Room Brawl Huge. with Undertaker. And we- and I don't know if technically I won, but I walked away the winner. I believe I did. Because he walked away the winner. Yeah, you, you have to get the urn, and he didn't get the urn. I did. So I was 2-0 and on pay-per-views, uh, which for you uh, uh, trivia enthusiasts out there, were the only two victories <laughs> I ever scored over the Undertaker. If I had 100 matches, so we like to exaggerate the number. I'd say I had close to 100 matches. In this business, we tend to exaggerate sure. because we believe it in our head. But I believe I had a hundred matches or so, and my record was two and ninety-eight. But those were the two that counted. They did. So that takes us into now September. We've got uh, mind games with Sean. October buried alive. November I work with Undertaker again. And the MSG at MSG, and now that's run its course. Yes. So now I'm on the road in December, January, working house shows with the champion. And doing my best to, to tear it down with a champion who's injured, beaten up, uh, is pro- I guess in the long scheme of things, beginning to lose his smile. But we were having some very good matches with two guys who were really banged up, really hurting, and finding a way to have very good matches around the loop. So it wasn't like I was out of the loop, but I was. they were at a loss, I think, for creative for me moving forward. I don't know when we'll talk about it again, so I want to bring it up now. Creatively, what were the plans, as far as you heard, about Terry Gordy coming in as the executioner? Because when he helps you in October at the yeah, pay-per-view and makes yeah. the debut, it feels like he's going to be a part of this gang with you and Paul Bear. We know it didn't work out. Um and longtime fans know that, as the story goes, Gordy wasn't Gordy anymore by that point. No. But had it gone well, what would it have looked like? Well, I, I, this is what I, I read back at the time, that Terry had gone into ECW and had a nice little run where for at least one night, with the Ravens' help, 
Gordy look like the Gordy of old. Yeah. And Michael Hayes, oh man, I don't know if I've ever seen anyone uh, more loyal to his friends. I agree, totally. buddy, buddy Jack. Um, Roberts, you know, even after Buddy lost his voice, he had to speak through the, uh, the pipe or the straw, whatever it might be. And then Terry Gordy was one of the great wrestlers. I remember uh, Shane Douglas telling me he was on a tour of all Japan, and he couldn't tell you whether the matches that Gordy was having with Tenru were were real or not, because the feeling was so believable. Wow. You, you'd see a few things in there and say, okay, that couldn't happen. And there was no UFC at that time yeah. to base it off of. I'm not talking about 97. I'm talking about... 93, 94, when Shane, when Gordy was at his peak, I might be off by a year or two. Um, but then he overdosed on a plane to Japan. He was never the same. So I worked with Terry. Uh, I saw Terry work a number of times because he went from being in all Japan to IWA Japan. And as proud as I was to have helped put that little promotion on the map, there's a world of difference between IWA Japan and all Japan. And now Terry, who is, he is a, uh, mentally never the same, but physically. He looks the same. And even better. He was like a machine when it came to doing those step ups. That, you know, that was his thing. And I always appreciated that Terry and Dr. Death Steve Williams were nice to me on my tour in 91 when they didn't have to be. And Gordy even gave me like a set of uh, little mini speakers you could plug into your Walkman, which is a big freaking deal. Yeah. Not just to get the speakers, but to get them from Terry Gordy. But when he got to um, WWF, you know, that Gordy of old, I knew, I knew that, you know, I knew Terry wasn't the same. Uh, you know, when, when we did the King of the Death match uh, press conference, uh, I had I had heard about Rotten Ron Star breaking bottles over his head in uh, in eighty eight or eighty nine in Continental uh, when I worked with him, and I put that in the back of my mind as something I'd like to do. So at that press conference, I believe I smashed a bottle over my head, cut a promo on Gordy, acknowledging that he was one of the greats of all time, but telling about you know, how are you going to feel when there's ten thousand thumbtacks in the middle of that ring. And then after the press conference, Gore, Terry comes up because, bro, nobody ever told me nothing about no thumbtacks. And so I said, don't worry, Terry, we're going to be okay. And it was just odd that I was the guy walking him through that match. And I'd noticed that the Gordy punches of old, which were just so tremendous yes. and to me. Whenever I imitate a wrestling punch, I'm not talking about the punches I throw. I threw mainly forearms, especially after, you know, 2000, whenever I came back. I didn't have a lot of faith in my punches anymore. But Gordy had that punch. So I would say, like, all right, you know, this is where we're wrestling. It differs, obviously, from boxing or MMA yeah. in a lot of ways. But your power punches in boxing, and they usually come from – there's a short – Bam! You know, it's boom. It's it's, it's putting a core strength into it. Everything you have into a short punch. Whereas in wrestling, we don't throw it from here to here. We throw it from here, rattle it around, bring it back here, and bam! That's the Gordy punch, which was a thing of beauty. Yeah. But he, I, he specifically had been throwing punches that didn't have that authenticity anymore. 
And that's where I said, Terry, you've got a great reputation over here. I want to make sure that this is as good as it can be. It was only slated for eight or nine minutes because it was the opening round of the King of the Death match tournament. And I said, just uh, bust, bust my eyebrow. Just to hit me, you know, as hard as you can over the eye. And bro, are you sure about that? I said, yeah, yeah, I'm sure. And there was, I wanted it to look good for my sake, but I also wanted it to look good for his sake. Because if I'm in a position where I have to sell stuff that doesn't look good, that's not good for me. No. Nope. But I also was very conscious of his legendary status. I knew he was putting me over, which was no small, you know, feat in Japan and no small honor. And I wanted to make sure they look good. But so I knew what I was dealing with when Terry came in. I was surprised by the call. I was happy he got it. And... Uh, it just wasn't, he wasn't the same guy. Yeah. There's that, there's that part of uh, Buried Alive where, uh, and there's a reason why every subsequent Buried Alive match had a backhoe. Yeah. Because it turns out that filling a, you know, a six foot by three foot. Takes forever. It, takes forever, right? And I'm trying to do it at the end of a 20 minute match in October uh, 1996. I'm laughing because I realize I've got a line here that I shouldn't say that I will not say, um, but I could say. Uh, concern. You have to now. You can't tease us. We'll bleep it. <laughs> That's a, so. Their answer instead of a backhoe was to come out. You know, to be. I was joined by JBL. I was joined by Gordy actually hit Undertaker. So I yes. lose the match. You know, I'm buried far enough down uh, to where I lose the match. And then Gordy whacks Undertaker over the head. Breaks the, the shovel. shovel. Breaks the shovel. Undertaker drops into the hole. And now we basically have an exhausted mankind. JBL, uh, uh, Triple H. Goldust, too. I think. Goldust comes out there, too. And Gordy... You know, we're, we've got shovels out there, and Gordy, instead of using the shovel, basically turns around and looks more like a cat in a litter box yes. as he's scooping little handfuls of... And that's not what you want your executioner to do. No, the executioner okay. does not right. kitty litter. Yeah. All right. And so the line is, uh, is it's the first documented case of Triple H burying WWE. <laughs> <laughs> that's an oh, that's a horrible thing to it's say. It's a great line. It's a horrible thing to say, especially because he did so much to discover talent, you know. Sure. And, but ah, uh, oh, man, it's I've said that maybe two times, you know, when I've been on the road, and you know, it gets a laugh. But it's like, ah, oh, is it worth? Well, we know it's not true. You're right, just having yeah, fun. Just having a little fun. Uh, and I remember JBL and I talking. We might have even been riding at that time. And he said there was a father, a father that was watching with his child and went like, I can't believe what I'm seeing. The whole concept of burying your opponent alive. It's unbelievable. And keep in mind, this is the main event of an in-your-house match, which is only a in-your-house show. I know where you're going, and I can't wait. Two hours long. And so after the main event, here comes the... When the know, cameras turn off. The cameras turn off. We've just had a bolt of lightning come down from the scoreboard, which is one of my favorite stories. I'll tell it closer to Christmas time. Uh, Undertaker's hand comes up through the grass, right? We go off the air with Jim Ross going, he's alive, he's alive. And then Undertaker's head goes back down with no attempt to rescue the buried Undertaker. Now the the music hits and the new rockers come out <laughs> for their 
<laughs> and just run past the grave. Yeah, there's no rescue attempt. Like, it wouldn't have been great if they actually pulled Undertaker out of there for the sake of the 15, whatever it was, 12 to 15,000 fans in the attendance. Uh, I, because I believe we sold that son of a bitch out. So we saw a man die, but now... Here's Al Snow. Here's Al Snow. Yeah. Yes. And they're going to take on the Bushwhackers. Yeah. So that's one of your uh, that's one of your dark matches. Uh, but that's a situation we're in. Gordy is not the Gordy of old. It's just not working out like it was supposed to. Were you guys uh, supposed to be a tag team? I yeah yeah. I mean, they were supposed to be part of that new faction. Um, and we How did, cool would that have been? Nah, it, would, it would have been great. You know, as far back as uh, 91, I'd had a really good match with Terry uh, for global wrestling. And that was a big match for me. Like, to hang with a guy like that whose style was so realistic. It was part of that process for me of going from a mid-card kind of, kind of a comedy figure to really being a respectable main event guy. So hanging in with Terry Gordy, you know, for a 20-minute very physical match. I remember Barry Windham remarking on it, saying he watched it. And I said, what, what do you think? He goes, I think there could have been a little more selling. It was a good match, he said. Don't get me wrong. It could have been a, lot, a little more selling. But that was the style that Terry worked. You know, there wasn't a, a lot of selling going on in all Japan. There was some, believable. Uh, but you really had to work to get your guy to sell. So Gordy was one of those guys that uh, you know you ha- whose respect you had to earn. And if you didn't hang with him, he was going to do what he had to do to make sure that he you know he didn't look foolish out there. Does it ever cross your mind? I know we're getting way down the rabbit hole, but this is such a good dialogue. I got to ask: when you're in the heat of the moment and a guy's not really selling for you, does it cross your mind to, from an ego standpoint? Well, I'm not going to sell as hard either. Yes, it does. Yeah, it really does. If you're not going to yeah. make me look good, why would I continue, right? Yeah, and I was lucky in the sense that um, there is no story. You can you can his, analyze the annals of history. There's no story of me stretching someone in the ring. No. Beating someone up backstage. No. <laughs> but I had a lineup of really good-looking bumps. And basically, I was going to make you look good. You had to help me out. Yes. You, know, you had to help me out a little bit. You had to make my stuff look good. And there were some, I mean, you go in there and you'd be in some situations where maybe you can't talk to someone before a match. And I'm thinking specifically like 86 when I'm wrestling for Nigerian TV. It's a Brooklyn, New York, highly, uh, highly you know, Muslim show. Uh, I'm wrestling a you know, Muslim guy and he's he's not. He's not doing much for me because he's trying to look good in front of the crowd. And I'm in that terrible position now where I have to try to look strong because I'm going to take on the Nigerian champion. Right. And, and it's, so they'll, and they'll put in these 25 year old matches on TV, the same matches they see every single week. These, these people in Nigeria grew up on like Mighty Igor. Wow. And Mighty Igor was kind of a one trick pony, you know, a little bit like he was like Ivan Putski type character. But he'd been seen there for 25 years, and then they would just edit in a new match recorded in Brooklyn, New York. And uh, I remember that being a particularly difficult match and trying to look good, uh, trying to get my stuff in. I mean, even with the legendary Power Udi in Nigeria, I would try, I, you know, I, I would try to make him work for it. 
and guys would be surprised. I remember Brian Hildebrand telling me uh, he was surprised at, at the match I had with Bruiser Bedlam because he said Bruiser wasn't used to people working that hard with him, you know. Yeah. And uh, I, I understood I didn't have much in the way of offense. You know, I didn't have an unlimited arsenal there. And I had to make sure that what I did do looked good. But my big, uh, my strength was that I had the bumps that would make other people look good. Yes. And I can't, I can't tell you what was in my opponent's heads, but I believe there was the understanding that uh, it had to be a cooperative effort or else you weren't getting the best that I could, uh, could offer. All right, Mick, it's time. All of our listeners have been wondering when I was going to get you uh, smartened up about this. Are you familiar with Blue Chew? I have heard of it. Well, now you're going to learn all about it. This is like a hot tag for your wiener, Mick. (laughs) Okay. Are they going to use that in their... Yeah. Here's the deal, boys and girls. You know all about Blue Chew. Even Mick does. And and Mick is is a podcast rookie here, right? But yeah. you know this episode sponsored by Blue Chew. You knew that as soon as you clicked play and you saw my name. Blue Chew is a unique online service that delivers the same active ingredients as Viagra and Cialis, but it's chewable tablets. And Mick, you'll love this at a fraction of the cost. Fraction of the cost, really? Now, I like that. Now, here's the real reason on that, Mick. They have. They are basically offering like almost the generic version. So it's the same stuff if you've used Viagra and Cialis, but now it's in chewable form, which means you can take it on an empty stomach. You can take it day or night. You can be ready whenever an opportunity arises, or maybe it's time for that elusive run-in. Oh, right. Uh, yeah, Just, that's right. The Good hot to go. tag, come in, the house of fire. Yeah, working from underneath, going over. I mean, we can get it all in here. The process is simple, guys. You sign up at BlueChew.com. You consult with one of their licensed medical providers. And once you're approved, you'll you'll receive your prescription within days. And here's the best part, Mick. It's all done online. That means no visits to the doctor's office, no awkward conversations, and no waiting in line at the pharmacy. And I know this is important to you, Mick. BlueChew's tablets are made right here in the USA. The good old red, white, and BlueChew is prepared and ship directly to your door all in a discreet package but Mr. Foley there won't be anything discreet about your package with Blue Chew so uh, boys and girls check this out if you can benefit from extra confidence when it's time to perform Blue Chew can help and we've got a special deal for our listeners try Blue Chew for free can you beat that price you man? can't beat it but you gotta have the disclaimer about side effects right side effects include smacking the mat Yes. Firing up into a fighting position and saying, come on, and rushing your hair. Come on, you son of a yuck. And if you're not careful, an accidental eye poke. I mean, you never know. You just never know. Come on, boys and girls. Try this out for free. You can't beat free. All you got to do is use our promo code Foley at checkout. Now, you will have to pay $5 shipping, but why would you not do that? Why Come on would now. you not do it? It's BlueChew.com. The promo code is Foley. You receive your first month for free. Just visit BlueChew.com for more details and important safety information. And we thank BlueChew for sponsoring today's podcast and... Apparently, Mrs. Foley's baby's boy's baby boy. I don't know, but you're going home with some today, and I'm going to need to report back. I am a scientist. Okay. Uh, I can almost assure you that you are going to become my wife's least favorite person. Really? <laughs> virtue of giving me You're going to be pestering her all the time? Um, possibly. Hey, here's what's good about you in particular. Uh, 
you had three bites at the apple at the Royal Rumble. Yeah. I mean, I think if I'm thinking what you're thinking and you're thinking what I'm I thinking. I think I am thinking what I think you think I'm thinking. We start with, with Cactus Jack. Maybe we transition to Mankind. We finish with Dude Love or vice versa. Just switch it up. Just use promo code Foley at BlueChew.com. So you uh, <laughs> you find yourself you were a little quick ripped. to jump to my statement that there's not a single story of me stretching anyone anywhere. Well, I mean, I, I've always been under the impression if anyone took a liberty in a match <laughs> you were in, it was you against yourself. Probably, <laughs> yeah. yeah. Um, but boy, I could see how you could get frustrated with some of this creative because this is the era as we're getting ready for WrestleMania 13. Where we have the association with AAA, which is awesome, yeah, especially yeah. for a show like San Antonio. But now we have a mini Vader and also a mini Mankind. Yeah. What do you think of uh, the news that, hey, there's going to be a mini Mankind? I liked it. Really? I did like it. You know, Vader and I were on polar opposite sides. I can't imagine he saw the humor. Uh, uh, he did not see the humor at all, especially when he heard his music playing. And he rushed over, and the bunch of us in front of the monitor, he rushes over thinking he has a match, and then he sees the little fellow running around. To his music. He didn't like it. So, uh, What if they added a slot whistle to his music? <laughs> <laughs> I wrote about this in, the, in Have a Nice Day, 1999, towering New York Times number one bestseller, that the difference between my mini, I understood that having a mini named after you in That's Mexico a cool was a really big honor, right? Like yeah. Mascarita Sagrada was such a, a phenomenal, uh, you know, um, mini that people forget he was actually named after a mes- Mascara Sagrada, right? So that I understood it was a big deal. Uh, and I understood when they'd have like a trans wrestler that that was a big deal too. Like Mexico was way ahead of the curve yeah. when it came to respecting trans people. I think it's whether it's just in the wrestling world. I don't. I don't know. But you know, having a trans wrestler named after you or uh, inspired by you been around for a long too. time. Yeah. Um, so while my guy, I'm sit, I'm sitting and down, and I'm saying, okay, that was good, and I've got a translator there. And I'm saying, but you know, you can't just be mankind. You can't just be dressed as mankind. You have to act as mankind. So I'm sitting on the corner. You know, I actually get down and I'm rocking and I'm telling the guy he doesn't have to actually pull his hair, but pull it. Yeah. And meanwhile, Leon's mini was walking around going attorney, attorney, because that was what Leon was threatening him with. It was, He's telling a little person, "I'm going to sue you." Yeah, basically, Leon wow. wasn't. Uh, he wasn't nearly as excited about having a mini named after him as I was. Uh, and and Sagrado was, I think, Masquerita Sagrado was part of that. You know, uh, it was a short-lived. Uh, Mick, come on, short-lived. Come on, Mick. But, oh, I didn't mean that. I, I mean the relationship <laughs> between WWE and, and AAA was short-lived. Yeah, it was. Uh, yeah. But still, a mini mankind, that was uh, not something I expected to see. Uh, you wrote in your book, that, and you actually downplay uh, on TV, and it was due to the fact that you had only signed a one-year deal and yet hadn't been renewed. Um, talk me through that. Is the reason for this lack of great storyline because they weren't sure you were sticking around? Was the company struggling financially? Just behind the scenes, what were you thinking was going to happen when this one-year deal was up, say Royal Rumble time. It surprises me to learn about the one-year deal because I thought everyone signed a five-year deal. 
and I don't think I was in a position where I, I don't know. I, 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 I know I wrote that. There had to be something to it. Um, I, it didn't occur to me that they were downplaying me because I understood. I always felt like you needed to ebb and flow. You can't stay hot forever. Yeah. And I understood that was part of the process. And I also understood that, you know, one thing that uh, drives me a little crazy about a lot of today's fans is they think if it's not for the title, it's not right. It's not uh, consequential. And I grew up loving the feuds. Yes. So that uh, uh, Snuka Morocco was for the Intercontinental Championship, but it might as well not have been because yes. it was all about pride. Yes. And so I grew up loving that. It was easier to have those uh, blood feuds when you had blood, right? It was easier to make, uh, you know, suspend disbelief. That it was easier to be that that match that makes guys like me come into school and tell his buddies, okay, I know wrestling is what you know, but hey, that was real. Yes. You wanted to be the guy that made people say that was real. And for me, never feeling like I was championship material to begin with. You know, I was tag team championship material, right? But I, I never set my sights on the title matches because I didn't think I had a spot there. I think I had a spot in losing title matches, but I, I didn't I didn't base the importance of my match on whether or not there was a title attached to it. Even when you're in the main event for the title in, a, in your house pay-per-view in October of 96, you didn't consider if this goes well, maybe this is a trilogy. Maybe there's you just knew. Well, I wish we, you talk about this match with Sean. Yeah. In September. Yeah. Man, I, yeah. I wish and we had very little storyline going into it. Well, it was a promo or two, but basically... It was kind of rushed. It was kind of rushed, and Sean had been teaming up with Taker against me and Goldust at house show matches. And we'd been going around the loop with some really good matches, but Mind Games was the first time Sean and I ever squared off for singles of any kind. And it was... The chemistry was... Magic. Immediate. Yeah, immediate. And I look back like, yeah, I wish there'd been more. I specifically wish there'd been a Mania match. Yeah. And I had worked myself into. I was still about two seventy for that match, but I was. I had really worked myself into good shape, meaning cardio was strong, and it wasn't a factor even in the back of my mind. And there's a segment in that match where I dropped the, uh, the like the flying headbutt, you know, uh, inspired by Sullivan, Kevin Sullivan's Tree of Woe, and my mask comes loose, and there's no panic at all. I'm just rocking back and forth. So I'm in character while I tie the mask. So I remember feeling like there was no panic. Uh, I was really confident in what I was going to do. And I wish I'd had that level of confidence on a bigger stage with, uh, with a more fully uh, realized angle. Yeah. So as we're getting ready to, um, to come into WrestleMania... You know, there's a lot of moving parts, and we're going to talk about a lot of politics and behind the scenes. But as we're talking about the contract, you're probably, if you're working with Taker and you're working with Sean and you're in main events, it's probably not a thing where you're wondering, hey, how am, are they going to renew me? You're getting main event payoffs, right? So from a house show perspective, even if the houses weren't what they what, what they would be in the future, it's not like you're worried they don't see value in the character. Right. Right. Um, we could go back and look at my 97 payoffs. 
I I I, I complain. I would complain from time to time. Really, I would. Yeah. Um, Matt, you can check with Jr. I was. I assume I, that goes to Jr. Yeah, right? it was Jr. I didn't overdo it, but uh, I I did. I would fight the fight when I really believed in it, especially when the houses took off, and then I would see that I was getting less for a main event than I was getting for a semi-main event with half the crowd. So I, I realize this is not a uh, mathematically fine-tuned process. This is a gut feeling. So Jr. would say, well, you know, Mick, uh, you know, the shows are selling. You know, he would say, you weren't in the main event. I'd say, Jim, these shows are selling out before we even announce a main event. It's the strength of the company that's selling it. And I think as somebody who's up here, that I should be factored in a little more than I am. So I didn't complain often, uh, but I complained regularly. So I would say <laughs> every couple months. Usually I, about pay-per-views or house show know, tours or but, combination? Well, combination, but uh, with the pay-per-views, you knowing what other guys, you know, kind of getting a feel for what other guys were bringing in uh, based solely on the buy rates, then I would think that I deserved what someone else got for a similar role in the company. Uh, but 97, I wasn't, probably wasn't making what I should have, uh, for main events around the loop. Um, let's go back in time okay. one year to when you first I'm, I'm, come the, in. The sigh comes because I'm like, do I really want to complain about the payments, you know, 25 years after the fact, because the company ended up doing so much for me, but 97 was not a the Huge. company's hurting. In yeah, the company's hurting. Yeah. So I've just, I'm going to say, I think I pulled in about $350,000 in 1997 as a full-time wrestler working around the country and the world near the top of the card. Not and, a ton of money. And not a ton of money. Uh, especially and, when you deduct expenses out of it. Expenses, the pain I was in. Yeah, uh, taxes. So you weren't getting rich. You would need about... 10 of those years in a row to even start really getting a comfortable nest egg for the future. So just thinking back to when you first debuted, did you, you know, as we're going from say WrestleMania 12 to 13 financially, did it meet your expectations? Did it exceed your expectations? Well, well let me put in context that when I left WCW, I was making 150. So 350 felt really good to me. Yes. It was in uh, 98 when Terry Funk and I were, were working together in rooming. He said, Cactus, the business is changing. There's going to come a time when someone makes a million dollars a year. Uh, or that, By that point, Brett was already making a million dollars a year. Hogan was making a million dollars a year. So that may have been a 97 conversation when Terry came in. for He would come in and out for short periods of time. But I was not upset with 350 at the time. In uh, your head, the 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 high watermark, uh, Hall and Nash would call it sting money. Yeah, was that your high watermark? Yeah, I thought 750 was as high as you could get. Yeah, and I would have been thrilled with that. And by 98, I was making that type of money. Sure, but 97, yeah, the the pay per views. Uh, uh, I remember uh, there was. Um, a question at a meeting about, uh, you know, Vince had a, uh, a meeting. Uh, any questions? And Owen raised his hand. He said, yeah, where's the other half of my pay mania check? 
because it wasn't what it was expected to be. Probably ninety-seven. Yeah, because the buy rate was buy rate, abysmal. Really, buy rate wasn't great, and I think the company had gone out of their way to make sure mania by paper uh, payoffs were really solid because they wanted that to be the the flagship, the granddaddy of them all, and it, it has become that. Um, but at that that year, we were even with the the incredible Bret Hart Steve Austin match. The buy rate wasn't it wasn't it was a down WrestleMania across the board, and I think a lot of that's probably due to the success of WCW. Like the NWO had just taken over, and it was the hot thing. But you know, Kevin Nash talked about one of the reasons he wanted to leave the WWF is in that era you didn't know what kind of year you were going to have until you got your mania payoff. Uh, so I am curious when, when Owen raises his hand and says, where's the other half of my mania payoff? Uh, obviously he says that sort of tongue in cheek, but does Vince try to explain the realities of that buy rate to everyone? Or is it just dismissed because of the public forum? I think he was quickly dismissed. Yeah. Um, that's a conversation he would only have with individuals. Yes. I'm jumping ahead to when I was the commissioner. Uh, but, uh, I remember being asked if I could talk with Edge and Christian, Hardys, Dudleys, and they just got in their payoff after that pay-per-view where this is after Edge and Christian had the torn the house down with yes. uh, Hardys and kind of set the mold for that amazing ladder match. Uh, so now it's the, the three teams, and uh, they, uh, I guess they felt like I was still one of the guys, right? Yes. They are, they fully understood that I'm not actually the commissioner, right? Right, right, I'm right. not actually office. And I said, well, how bad was it? And when they said 10 grand, I went, you got $10,000 for that? And so I went to Jim on their behalf and uh, petitioned for more money. Uh, and, uh, you know, he gave me an example of, uh, and it looks, man, you know, it's, it's bolt of lightning could come down if I say anything construed as being disparaging at all towards The Undertaker. But when uh, I brought up how much I, we had heard Undertaker made, he goes, well, Undertaker's a tenured veteran. I said, be that as it may. The match with him and Boss Man was thrown together like that. It was not a good match. And to pay anyone, whatever the incredible disparity was, I don't know if it was 50 times or 30 times or 20 times, but it was still, it felt like a slap in the face to those guys uh, getting paid that little. And they did get bumped up from there. But I think Vince always wanted, as a guy who strives to have talent reaching for the brass ring, I think he wanted it known that only when you got that brass ring could you make that kind of pay-per-view main event money. Do you think Vince also hated the idea of paying six guys in a match? Maybe. Yeah, maybe so. I've just heard over the years that uh, if you have a main event and it's a tag team, you got to pay four guys instead of two. Uh, yeah, yeah. I mean, that's yeah, a simple yeah, yeah. deal, but... Just curious. So uh, we find ourselves in a tag match here for you uh, at WrestleMania. Um, some creative ideas are floated around, and Jim Cornette gives you a call, and you wrote this in your book. I received a phone call at home from Jim Cornette. He was all excited. Cactus, he said, in his high-pitched Louisville lingo. I know you haven't been in the mix that much, but Gum, I think we've got something for you. What is it, Corny? Well, Cactus, we're thinking of doing a little something where Mark Merrow and Rena 
continue their little spat and you don't like it. So you deck Mark, you want arena with your little group, but uncle Paul doesn't like it. So you deck Paul. Now, Paul still doesn't like Rena, but he knows he has to tolerate her for your sake. And the three of you will have your own little strange family. So I'll just stop right there. But at this point, you had to hate every bit of this, right? I did. Yeah. I did. Um, and uh, I want to—I don't want to make my words so lukewarm that, uh, you know, we stink up the place here. Uh, but I also want to preface... What I'm about to say by saying Mark Merrow is one of the great ex-wrestlers of all time, meaning what he does, talking to oh, know, yeah. schools, he's phenomenal. But that the wild man character wasn't. It's a miss. It was a miss. And what added fuel to the fire, talking about the fire in my gut, and I think yeah. I could speak for Steve Austin. Uh, also, at this time, uh, Mark had come in just shortly after Steve and only days after I came in. And whereas I signed for uh, an opportunity, Mark got a guaranteed contract and a pretty sizable one. And that, oh, man, it, it fueled me in a positive way. But it was all, you know this negativity that we fed off of and channeled it in positive ways. So I, I did not want to be in an angle with Mark because I just didn't. I thought my character connected with a lot of different characters uh, and they didn't have to be them. It could be. Straight, you know, like straight men, you know, wrestlers. I worked really well with a guy like Bret Hart, uh, war character driven uh, wrestlers. I didn't feel like I could do something solid with Mark. And I should have, and you know, looking back on it now, Rena was really on the rise at that yes. time as Sable. And she would go on to be a veritable superstar. That could have been really interesting. But I think I, I know that before. Um, before um, my mind games match with Sean, uh, originally I was supposed to be slotted in for a match with Mark. And the company really was behind him at that time. You know, I mean, Vince had pressure to make the investment, investment work. Look, yeah. look like it was a, a, a good one. Uh, and I didn't want to be, I wasn't excited about it. I wasn't in a position where I could say no, but I don't know what changed behind the scenes where I went from singles with Mark Merrow to a singles with Shawn Michaels, but that worked out to my favor. Yeah, hell yeah. And again, just Mark Merrow, he's a, and I personally apologized to him for, you know, for taking shots at him over the years. And it was purely out of financial jealousy, as is, you know, something, anything I would have said about Rena, you know, in years later was purely out of, jealousy part of it you know financial and part of it you know going to autograph shows where her line would be five times what mine was it hurt you know it hurts guys like me uh but she was a veritable superstar on the rise and that could have been a good angle but i did not want to be part i get a, i get a sinking feeling you know like i'm a gut player too when your heart sings into your stomach that's a sign that something's not right about it you know, I could be elated after a talk with, uh, and Corny's a good salesman, right? Yeah, hell yeah. And Corny was often the the bearer of bad news when it came to, he was the guy who would deliver the news to me. He was the guy who told me after I did these vignettes as Mankind that were a big hit with everyone except Vince. Yeah. And I said, but Jimmy, uh, Vince said he loved my promos. And he hesitated and said, Cactus, I'm not sure Vince has ever seen one of your promos which was still strange to me. And I know we've talked about that in the past. We feel like a guy who micromanages everything would take that extra 
10 minutes to look at a highlight tape or maybe yeah. even an hour. If yeah. this guy's going to be one of the, you know, backbones of the company, maybe you should take that hour to watch a few promos, a few matches, and really get a better grasp on what you have. But Vince is a gut player. What he sees on that 13-inch monitor the first time you walk into his ring is what your your future is based on. Talking about Miro for a minute, did you have any interaction with him in WCW? I mean, you guys were there for a yeah, long time. Yeah, we were there, time. and we were good friends. Uh, I remember Mark and Rena would be at uh, Sting's gym, Sting and Luger had main event fitness, Mark and Rena coming to Dewey's birthday party. Uh, so I consider Mark, Mark a good friend. Uh, and I, and what he was dealing with Johnny B. Bad was tremendous. And he also showed that he can make himself a valuable commodity. You know, rumor had it that Jane Fonda saw, uh, some of the great work that Mark was doing on his own, speaking to groups of kids. It's always been something in his heart. Yeah. Uh, and the, and that was part of the reason why he ended up with a, such a great contract in WCW. So no question that that was a great fit. Here's a, <laughs> a Jewish kid from upstate New York playing a black man from Macon, Georgia. Yes. And somehow making it work. I remember saying to a, there was a guy named Frank Polera, who was a huge boxing enthusiast, who, uh, who went to college with me in Cortland, New York. And, uh, and Mark, Mar- Mark Merrow had knocked out one of his guys. Uh, maybe he defeated Razor Ruddock. Uh, he, he'd beaten somebody who was a really big deal in professional boxing. And I said, yeah, Mark Merrow, uh, he beat Razor Ruddock. And, and, uh, and he goes, but Mark, but Merrow's a white guy. He didn't know Mark Merrow was Johnny B. Bad. And so when I told him that, the guy playing Johnny B. Bad had beaten Razor Ruddock, he said, Merrow's a white guy. So, Mark spent so much time in that tanning bed that yeah. he accurately portrayed a flamboyant black man. Uh, did it very well uh, to the point where Vince became a big fan of that character and he was really rolling. But I didn't have anything. To, I didn't. I don't even know if we had a match. Don't even know if we had a match when I was in WCW. But I mean, he's coming to your kid's birthday party. Yeah, so yeah. you're. Uh, "Quote unquote heat with him is really with the company that it's they really believed the in in him more than they believed in yeah, you." Yeah, exactly, exactly, and that it, it hurt. I remember Steve and I, uh, Austin and I, commiserating over it, uh, but it was a positive. You know, I don't know if I could have reached the heights I did without that little kick in the butt. How much of that really came down to leverage, too? In that, you know, you didn't jump right from WCW right. to the WWF and nor did Steve. Yeah. So maybe they felt like, well, Hey, he'll take it. Or, you know, as JR likes to say, go shop your resume. Yeah. Whereas when Mero comes, he created a little bit of a low key bidding war between both sides. Yeah. And he did keep in mind what I had uh, going on was I was working for ECW. Yes. Um, doing some good stuff there. I was in IWA Japan pulling down three grand a week, which is really three grand for 10 days because there are three days of travel, coming home in really rough shape. Burn up. Burn up, yeah, especially in August. But even before then, coming home with the wounds that I, I said a doctor, you know, described as looking like I'd been part of a prison break or saying he'd only heard about injuries like these uh, in prison breaks. And even when... W, even when IWA Japan wanted to keep me there and wanted to put me under contract, they were going to bump me up by 500 a week. So you'd be looking at 10 tours a year 
for $3,500. Not great money no. considering what you're doing to earn it. And so this isn't a case where, you know, you've got a, a Hanson or Brody contract in all Japan and you can make your living there in 20 weeks and then kind of take it easy, take some indies, do whatever you want to do. Stan later went on to be part of WCW, you know, on I think on a thousand dollar a night guarantee. Uh, but got big guys like that who worked a really physical style usually had time to recuperate. Whereas yeah. I would come home. My wife, I may remember one night my wife met me at JFK with the kids. We drove to Jim Thorpe, Pennsylvania. The kids were sleeping. So I went in, did my match with Sandman uh, at the same arena that New Jack tried to throw Taz over the, through the window, like out onto a 50 foot, in, you know, a 50 foot drop. And this was Taz in a neck brace after breaking his neck. Um, but I, I mean, I was back from Japan and on the road every, uh, just about every single weekend, you know, you had to make, uh, hey, while it was it, make hey while the sun shines. There you so, go. There you go. Hey, you're a Southern. You got to do it. Yeah. Yeah. So Mick, after a big match back in the day, you know, it's been said once upon a time, especially in New York, Vince would take the guys out for a big steak. Maybe once upon a time, it was Smith and Walensky, something like that. Everybody loves steak, do they not? Oh, man. I was at Smith and Walensky's uh, with Al Snow and Kevin Kelly. And Mr. McMahon walked in with a bunch of people. And then uh, word came over that he was picking up our check. Wow. I'd never been so embarrassed because this is Smith and Walensky, one of the top steakhouses in New York City and the country. Yeah. And the bill for three people was $37. So we were going cheeseburger, water with lemon in it. Yeah. So we were there. I think if you want to enjoy some of the finer things, you need to go with Omaha Steaks. Omaha Steaks is going to get you the same great steak that you've been dreaming of. But boy, it comes right to your house. And here's a little gift giving wisdom from Omaha Steaks. Dads want steaks. And with Father's Day right around the corner, there isn't a better gift than Omaha Steaks. Visit omahasteaks.com and type Foley in the search bar and order the Dads Want Steaks package. For just 99 bucks, this limited package will include 16 mouthwatering entrees he's guaranteed to love. We're talking smoky, tender wrap bacon fillets, gourmet jumbo franks, and their air-chilled boneless chicken breasts. And for a sweet finish, what about those delicious caramel apple tartlets? I'm getting hungry just thinking about it, Mick. And as a special gift for our listeners, when you type Foley, that's F-O-L-E-Y in the search bar, and you order the Dad's Want Steaks package, you'll also get eight free Omaha Steaks burgers. These burgers are full of bold, beefy flavor made from 100% Omaha Steaks, and now they're bigger than ever at a whopping six ounces. Six ounces? Six ounces. Come on now. We're not talking about a quarter pounder. We're talking about a quarter and a half pounder. This is a lot of poundage here. A lot. Right? I'm just saying, don't wait. Send Dad more than a gift. Send him an experience he'll love and can share with you. You see, that's the pro tip right there, Mick. Because if you just get Dad a tie, when are you ever going to get to enjoy that tie? But if, if you get Dad the Omaha steaks, he's going to grill them. He's going to invite you over. You're eating good too. It's kind of a gift for both. But I have of you. to tell you, as a guy who's tr- who has been cutting down on the meat consumption, you need to take that that steak experience and make it something special. Yes, that's why when it comes to red meat, if it's not Whataburger and it's not Omaha, I don't know if I can take part. 
I got to recommend it. Go to omahasteaks.com, type Foley in the search bar, and order the Dad's Want Steaks package. You'll get 16 entrees and four desserts, plus eight free Omaha Steaks burgers. Omaha Steaks isn't just steak. It's the best steak of your life, guaranteed. That's omahasteaks.com, keyword Foley. So uh, this call with Cornette where he's laying out this plan for Rena and strange little family, you're straight up with Corny and say, hey, uh, I don't really love that. And he says something like, you know, we're just trying to get you on the card for Mania. And you relay, well, if that's the idea, I'd rather not be on Mania. That took some balls. It did. I wasn't thumbing thumbing my nose at Mania. I just, I wanted everything I did to be good. Yeah. I wanted people to know when I was on a card or on a show that it was going to be good. And I didn't want to just, I didn't want a participation trophy. You know, I, I wanted to go out there. And I'm not saying participation trophies in general are bad things, but at that time I was 20, you know, 29 years old. You're trying to make an impression. Yeah, trying to make an impression. Um, And it's important to realize your moments so far at WrestleMania have been attacking The Undertaker the night after WrestleMania, Mm -hmm. baiting him in a boiler room brawl, tearing the house down with Shawn Michaels, literally burying The Undertaker. And then the next month, he's reborn and floats down from heaven in Madison Square Garden. Yeah. And now... Hey, uh, you're going to be feuding with Mark. I could see how you're like, mm, that's not the next logical spot for right, me. Yeah. Right. And so I would have rather taken a step back, allowed people to catch their breaths. Yeah. And then come back with something strong because I always felt like I could do that. I had that sense of confidence. And I also felt like absence makes the heart grow fonder. I didn't feel like I needed to be on every pay-per-view. I didn't feel like I needed to be on every TV. I, I felt like I had to be featured enough to to make people care but i didn't feel like i needed to be involved in everything every week or every month just a handful of years prior to this you're hoping that vader splash you on the ramp and end your wrestling career right at this point in early 97 how many years did you imagine you'd be wrestling forward like did you think because a lot of guys think you know wrestlemania is all about the moments i've got to have my moment and I wasn't able to participate in 96. If I'm telling Corny now, well, I'd rather just not be on Mania then. You've got to wonder, knowing your career or this contract is coming due, somewhere in your mind's eye, I've got X number of years left, right? Right. right. What do you think that was at the time? I remember Paul Heyman surprising me by at a time when I did not think WWE was in my future telling me that he thought it could be and that they could see me as a guy who could work near the top for 10 years. Wow. Because I I thought the about five was all I had left. And it turns out that four was all I had left. But as we get into... As, you don't mean financially. You mean physically. Physically. I thought that's all I had to offer. And I did not know that I could be doing a podcast yeah. About this match 25 years after the fact. I think you and I talked about uh, the idea that I thought I had an 18-month shelf life. Right. Um, Comic-Cons were not a, you know, Comic-Cons were not a big deal. Yeah. You know, even the uh, San Diego was uh, 10,000 people in uh, in 99. 
Um, the wrestling conventions were kind of in their infancy. Yeah. Uh, John Arizzi had the first one in 1990, I think, with Weekend of Champions. But even then, you had about six or eight guys. You know, it wasn't a WrestleCon where you had 100 people. And so I thought, I've got to make my money while I can. I believed I had a five-year window. But as soon as I do that match with The Undertaker, Buried Alive, that's where I start having difficulties with my back. You know, if I had to trace it back to one thing, it would be that bump from the ladder, which I thought would take me 100% onto the cardboard boxes. And I'd say about half my body landed on the boxes. At SummerSlam? Yeah, SummerSlam. So you never know, because in most cases, I'd say almost all cases, it's the straw that breaks the camel's back. Accumulation. Yeah, it's the accumulation. But that's when I really started hurting on a regular basis. So by the time WrestleMania rolls around, 97, I don't, I'm not sure I've got three months left, Wow! let alone five years. So you may have just told Corny, I'd rather finish my career <laughs> not being on a WrestleMania. And yeah. so from that, you have a meeting with Vince, Bruce, Paul Bear, and Gerald Briscoe. Um, obviously, you've spent a lot of time working with these guys over the prior year. But Vince McMahon is an intimidating figure. Yeah. I mean, he is the Walt Disney of this stuff, and he certainly has a presence when you meet him and all that. And here you are seemingly thumbing your nose at his creation, his Mm -hmm. granddaddy of them all, his Super Bowl. Are you nervous going into that meeting that you have to explain why you would rather not do it? Yeah. Yeah. It's always nerve wracking to talk to Vince. I think when I finally got to a point uh, where I could assert myself, and get in arguments and even verbal fights with Vince. It did a lot for my sense that I could do anything because after you've, you know, traded war, a war, been in a war of words with the larger than life bellicose billionaire, yeah. uh, the rest of life is pretty easy. Yeah, it's not as difficult. Um, I don't specifically remember that meeting. Uh, I don't, but I do know that I was really concerned that I didn't have much left in the tank just because of the back injury. Nothing I was doing seemed to be working. I was and my, at that time you'd be on the road for 10 days, off for three days, on for three, off for three. Uh, and I remember that almost every off day, where at least one day out of that of those three would be spent going to the chiropractor and the yeah. massage therapist, just really trying to get through the next ten days. There was a guy named Francois Petit. Oh, uh, he was the yeah, man. Yeah, he, he was the man. You know, he was like a, almost like a miracle healer. But you had to pay for that miracle. The stuff he did was extremely painful. Especially he had these incredibly strong fingers. And he would have he would put pressure on points in your forearm, ask you to open up your fingers. Like there were guys who would just walk out of those uh, therapy sessions because they, they it was incredibly painful. But he described me when I walked into his office as looking like a question mark, meaning that I was just so Slumped incredibly over. bent over. Anyone who's ever had that incredible pain and sciatica seems like a benign uh, condition. But it's it, not. Man, it'll bring a, a grown man and a tough man to his knees to the point where in 2007, when I had another run with sciatica, I remember my daughter just looking at me with such sympathy in her eyes and such pain in her own eyes because she'd never seen her dad reduced to that state where my I had to actually get in the back. I think we had a pretty good SUV at that point. 
and my wife had to take me to the hospital with me in the back rolled up in the fetal position. So now imagine that type of pain, but yeah. it's 10 years earlier and you're ha you're not you're not allowed the luxury of curling up in a fetal position in an SUV. You have to be on that flight, which is coach every almost every single not every three or four days you're on a plane. Other than that, you're driving from town to town, but you're in difficult coach class seats. It's an, it's a difficult way of life, and we all know that going in. But when you've been in it now, at that point, we're talking 12 years or 11 when the pain really comes in. I had a pretty good uh, threshold for pain, and so when I said something was bothering me, it was really, really bothering me. And at that point, I wouldn't even consider taking the pain pill for the pain. That wasn't even part of the equation. Uh, Why were you so opposed? Because I'd, I was opposed to pain pills because I'd seen that path, and I did not want to go down that path. I remember when I was going to Memphis for the first time, that was almost like a romantic vision that you'd be the guy who gets so banged up and that when your friends see you, you know, your words are slurred. Uh, I, you, that was crazy to say that's like a romantic vision, but that was almost like an accepted path. For the wrestling business in Tennessee, you mean? And, yeah. When I went to Tennessee, I'm not saying that it was accepted in Tennessee. I'm just saying I understood at that point that wrestlers were starting to get medication. I I didn't know that one of the most coveted relationships you could have uh, in the territories is with a nurse with a prescription pad. That was a very held, heralded, uh, you know, relationship to have. Um, and I'd seen enough. To know I didn't want to go down that path. And so I was resistant even one pain pill. I mean, you know, I was trying to make it on its own. Eventually, I'd, I'd fold to the point where I would have one pill every great, you know, once in a great while. And it would work. It would. No question about it. It worked. But I understood that you could uh, develop a tolerance in a hurry. And that something that was first taken out of necessity then becomes a drug, a recreational drug. And I did not want to go down that path. Once upon a time, I had a conversation with Jeff Jarrett about how it felt like when guys would use the word Soma, they were always talking about essentially the new generation WWF. Mm -hmm. And I asked why he thought maybe that was. And he reminded me that that was the era where drug testing really became a thing. And so for years and years prior to that, uh, guys would rely on marijuana mm -hmm. and beer. And now you were being tested and, and you couldn't be caught smoking marijuana. Mm -hmm. So you would go the prescription route because that was legal and you wouldn't get in trouble. It was. And it became almost, you had to pick your poison. And don't get me wrong, marijuana was illegal. But boy, in hindsight, it would have been better for a lot of guys, yeah. wouldn't it? Yeah, it certainly would have. Uh, I never used marijuana recreationally. Uh, I think we, we talked about, uh, my first experience with an edible. Yes. Yeah. Uh, so even when I had an edible, it would knock me on my butt. Um, but I've still to this point, never, never, uh, smoked, smoked marijuana. Yeah. But even then I understood that, man, it's not the worst thing to have yeah. guys it basically, they get the munchies and they laugh at stuff that doesn't seem funny. Yes, that's what happens. And, and I would rather be in a room full of uh, funny, hungry guys. Funny, hungry guys in a room full of drunks. Yes, you know people who smoke 
um, partook in marijuana, didn't get angry, they didn't get in fights. Um, the crazy mood swing was happy. Yeah, it was yeah. happy. And I remember thinking even then, even though I didn't partake, that uh, that was a tough thing to take off the table for the guys. Uh, uh, Kurt Hennig referred to it as the peace pipe. Uh, <laughs> and he said, uh, yeah, when they took the peace pipe out of the hands, then guys started drinking more. Yeah. And at that point, there didn't seem to be any kind of national database and guys could shop for doctors and have them in um, different cities. And that's where you started to see the, the Soma Shuffle, which was completely new to me. I hadn't seen that. And I, I mean, I'm no doctor by any stretch of the imagination, but I also think that the Somas, which are muscle relaxers, allowed the guys to completely relax from muscles, which is when muscles grow in rest. Yeah. So guys who work out hard, there seems to be a, a, a reason for it, you know, the, the need for it. Um, the sleep is really difficult. It was always... But mixing it with alcohol is dangerous. And mixing with alcohol is dangerous. Uh, but even uh, Sh Shane Douglas told me at the time when the testing came in that guys would start drinking more yeah. just to get to sleep. It's tough, you know. You're 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 working a nighttime business, and where we differ from touring bands is that the guys get in their buses and they go, and they have beds on those buses. Your you, real work starts behind the wheel. Yeah, yeah, getting from town to town, uh, and trying to knowing that there'll be one day, especially if you were like me and like to get on the road. That night to the next town, you could make it in there by 2 or 3 a.m. And you could sleep till sleep as long as you wanted. But then the next day, you're in a position where you're checking into a hotel for three, four hours. The Foley rule, and this is where the, the legendary thriftiness stories come in, is that I wouldn't check into a hotel. I was going to be there less than four hours. I would sit on a couch or lay on a couch or lay in my rental car, whatever the case may be. In the long term, I probably did myself more harm than good. Um, but not getting the good rest. Yeah, by not getting the good rest. But I, what I'm saying is it was really difficult to go from being, all right, I can I get 10 hours tonight, and this next night I'm getting zero hours. And not only am I getting zero hours, but I've got to go home and be dad. the best dad I can be, especially for that first day. Tough, man. So two weeks after the Rumble, uh, you're on Raw and you're teaming with Vader, and you're being managed by uh, Paul Bear and yeah. your opponents that night. Are the Godwins? Yeah, uh, two very capable hands that you also worked with in WCW. It's kind of funny. I don't think a lot of people think about those as WCW guys, but yeah. all four of you were there, yeah. and now here you are. Uh, you and Vader wind up brawling outside the ring, and you lose by countout. Uh, is Vader someone you would have been excited about working with in a tag team? Obviously, you guys were paired up, yeah, thick as thieves in WCW for a while as opponents. Yeah. But now you're going to be tag team partners. How did that strike you? I mean, he had been a top guy there. Yeah, yeah. Uh, Leon never really got the run he should have had. Agree. Um, I Some people, I see uh, YouTube suggestions that pop up. Just like so many of you listening see our YouTube suggestions popping up, right? Yes, sir. All right. Uh, but I, I'll see something, and it struck my mind, uh, stayed in my mind, because it said, the exact moment when Pushes died. And it's that photo of Sean browbeating Leon at SummerSlam 96. But even before then, I, we've talked a little bit about this, too. Yeah. Um, it, wasn't, it wasn't the Vader it should have been. Why they felt like they needed to reinvent the wheel 
I don't know. What Leon did was working. He's the most impressive big man to me of his generation. And then he comes in, and even with the even by when he splashes Gorilla Monsoon, he's literally running away. And that that running away That's not what Vader did. It's not what he did. It's not what he did. He didn't mean to need to take him and make him into a, a coward, right? Uh, look, Rudolph, uh, he took on the abominable snowman. Yes. The abominable snowman was the abominable snowman because he could uh, eat a deer whole, right? He terrorized the elf population, but he wasn't a coward. Yeah. It was, he couldn't swim. That was his, his one. And, and he bounced, right? But uh, Rudolph was able to get in there and uh, use the, the water against uh, the bumble. But the point being, <laughs> you don't need your heels to be cowards, yeah. right? That uh, some of them can be, but uh, you, you know, can't be a chicken shit heel and five hundred pounds. Yeah, yeah, it wasn't a good. You're a monster or a yeah, chicken shit, but yeah, not both. You can't be both. Yeah, and they tried to make him both, uh, and but, they tried to call him the mastodon. Like mastodon. that's a Vince McMahonism if yeah. there ever was one. Nobody even knows what I'm, I mean. I know the visual, yeah. but I'm just saying. Who's saying Mastodon in 1996 besides Vince? I, I, I like the Mastodon thing. I mean, I don't as, hate it. As a moniker. As if you've got a Texas rattlesnake, you've got a Mastodon. The, but it's the, almost a, an indication to me that they don't see that what he had done already was marketable enough. Yeah. Like what, he wasn't enough. And he was. He was. He was. So uh, you guys at home, forgive me if I'm telling the same, same story twice. But it's a good story. It's, it's Steve... Uh, and I, Stone Cold and I, with maybe one or two other people, and uh, and Leon's working with Sean around the loop. It's been made very apparent to, to Leon that he is supposed to take care of the champion, right? And it's really, de- honestly, it's really difficult to work Leon, WCW Leon style around the loop because he, he, he hit so hard and his stuff was so physical. And WWE's schedule was more demanding. Uh, WCW, they might put as many dates on the calendar, but so many of those dates were within a 500-mile radius of Atlanta. So you weren't on flights as often. WCW is still a grueling schedule, not as bad as WWE. So just making it and appearing in each town is a credit to the men and women on the card. But uh, Leon is bumping all over the place. For, he's no longer that wall that needs to be knocked down. Right. He's, you know, he's taking bumps on almost everything Sean does. And Steve turns to me and goes, hell, Leon's really got that style down, doesn't he? No, he's just got to lose 200 pounds to fit it. Meaning he's working like a guy who's 220. Yeah. And he's not working like uh, a behemoth or a mastodon. And he just got it in his head. But he was still capable, as he showed after he left, WWE. He main evented for uh, Japan for another yeah. handful of years at a very high level. But uh, man, they just got into his head, and uh, and you knew that here in '97. Like yeah. he's coming off of a tough patch. And also, I don't think Leon was ever the same after the Paul Orndorff yeah incident. Uh, man, you know, like. People accepted you didn't mess with Haku, Ming, like that was a given. Barbarian, uh, but Leon was thought to be, you know, on a level. Not, not that uh, Paul Orndorff was a legendary tough guy, but when Leon, when Leon was on the poor end of that fight, it really got to him 
because he in his head, you mean? Won a few drinks would hit him. I mean, he would just he would talk about that fight when we drove. That he could have had him or whatever. Yeah. He would explain why he thought when he shoved Paul and Paul gave him that first shot, you know, okay, we're even. He didn't expect Paul to commence, you know, and especially Paul had flip-flops on. And, that. and, and diminished. Yeah. I mean, Paul and, was- yeah, it diminished him in some sense, a little sense in front of the boys. Uh, but I, I mean, Paul's whole, arm. I yeah. mean, Paul was in a diminished capacity yeah, himself. Paul, yeah, Paul wasn't 100%. So I'm sure Vader on some level is like, he's the office and he's older and yeah. he's the veteran. Mm-hmm. So I could see all of that. And you don't expect, oh, we're not done. Uh, yeah, yeah, you don't expect that. And he, you know, I remember him just saying, I know in my heart I could beat up Paul Orndorff. It's like, Which is a silly thought. It's a silly thought, but it got into his head. Uh, to the point where, you know, Leon wasn't treated with the reverence, with the respect, let alone the reverence he had. And he blamed that. Uh, yeah, uh, he did. But there was just a feeling that he wasn't, uh, you know, I remember fans in Germany calling him Elmer Fudd. Uh, and it was just kind of sad because... He just he didn't assert himself. Fans the in way Germany he, saw him tear your ear off. Yeah, they did. And now he's Elmer now Fudd. Now he's Elmer Fudd, right? That's hard to yeah. reconcile. All right, boys and girls, you know what time it is. It's time for me to tell you about Chili Sleep. And I was just telling Mick about it. And, and here's the thing about this, Mick. Science tells us the best way to achieve and maintain consistent deep sleep is by lowering our core body temperature. And you've lived in the South. you got to have a ceiling fan in your bedroom. It's like we're required by law down here. Yes. Uh, well, here's the reason. Temperature-controlled sleep is going to repair your muscles after a hard day's work. It's going to improve your cognitive function so you can always start your day feeling sharp and alert. And that's been my experience. I have a chilly sleep. I've got the Uller system. I've had it for over a year now. It's changed my life. What I've got now is a customizable climate-controlled sleep solution that improves my entire well-being. Now, they make the Uller. You can also check out the Cube sleep system. Either way, we're talking hydro-powered mattress toppers, right? It's temperature controlled. It fits over your existing mattress to provide you your ideal sleep temperature. Let me explain, Mick. My wife likes to sleep a little warmer. So her side, she wants to be at like 75. I like to sleep a little cooler. I want to be at like 67. Yeah. I get a perfect night's sleep at that. But before I had chilly sleep, Mick, I'm cranking down the AC. I'm flipping the pillow. Now I'm paying to heat my laundry room. I I don't need my laundry room to be cooler. I need my bed to be cooler. Chilly sleep has made that happen. This is perfect for you to get that deep sleep, whether you sleep hot or cold. Chilly sleep systems are designed to help you fall asleep, stay asleep, and give you the confidence and energy to power through your day. Real quick, listen to this now. Imagine waking up and not feeling tired. Chili Sleep can make that happen. They've made it happen for me. Prior to Chili Sleep, Mick, I was sleeping like five, six hours a night. With Chili Sleep, I'm seven, eight, nine. I even slept 10 hours once with Chili Sleep. It's unbelievable to wake up and not feel tired. Sounds incredible. Because I'm the same way. My wife likes it hotter. Mm -hmm. I like it cooler. Mm -hmm. I lose out. Of course. Lose that argument. I'm a guy. It's what we do. Yep. And uh, a guy in a successful marriage has to learn to admit he's wrong, even when he knows in his heart he's not. Every Co- once in a while, correct. Has to learn to uh, make the uh, thermostat the wife's realm. But now we get our say. Well, yeah, man. And, and here's the thing, too. You don't want to wake up all hot and sweaty. You're not going to get a good night's sleep. You're going to get up and pee. You're going to be fighting with the covers. N- none of that anymore. 
So head on over to chillysleep.com forward slash Foley to learn more and save 30% off the purchase of any new Cube or Uller sleep system. This offer is available exclusively for Mick Foley listeners and only for a limited time. That's chilly, C-H-I-L-I, sleep.com slash Foley to take advantage of our exclusive discount. Wake up refreshed every day. If you could change one thing about your home, what would it be? A new kitchen, a new master bath, maybe put in a pool. What if you could do it with no money out of pocket and cheaper monthly payments? Savewithconrad.com can help, and you can even skip your next two house payments. NMLS number 65084, equal housing lender, savewithconrad.com. So uh, listen to this, Mick. Here's a Superstars taping, and you're going to team with Steve Austin and Farouk against Bret Hart, Ahmed Johnson, and The Undertaker. Uh, Taker's going to pin you after a tombstone, but boy, what a group that is. I mean, Ahmed Johnson's clearly somebody they've had high hopes for at this point, maybe two years. The Undertaker is still the phenom here. Bret Hart, probably the top guy or one of the top guys in the biz. Austin's on the rise. Mm -hmm. And here's Farouk, just a man's man, but maybe in a less than awesome gimmick, but we're transitioning into nation. So (laughs) the, the Rumble, if you remember, there's a nation uh, coming around. So now we're no longer blue Farouk. Okay. And we're trying to be uh, a more militant badass, if yeah, you will. Yeah. Um, but that feels like an interesting pairing. I mean, Bret Hart teaming with The Undertaker and Ahmed Johnson. Interesting group. First of all, let me go back to uh, our inability to defeat the Godwins. Yes. So not a knock on Phineas I or Henry O, but... If you're not getting a win over, if you're Vader and Cactus Jack and you're teaming up, which could be seen as a super team, you know, if you want to, it could be multiple time world champion uh, and 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 you can't score a win over. Uh, listen, go, jumping ahead to post Mania when I was the Undertaker's first opponent in Revenge of the Taker, Leon, I, Leon and I couldn't beat the Headbangers. Right, like we had a, a double count, whatever the. Schmaz was, but when this is going back to what we talked about at the top of the show, do you need do you do do losses hurt you? Not necessarily, but if you can't get wins or uh, ahead of your big matches, if you're heading into a main event with the Undertaker and you've just had a countout with the Headbangers, something's wrong. Something's wrong. Yeah. So you do get the message in a sense, like okay. Uh, we couldn't beat the Godwins. How uh, does this bode well for us? But at the point, uh, Conrad, I was in so much at that point. I was in so much pain that I wasn't looking much beyond Mania because I wasn't sure if I how long I could go on. Yeah, I honestly thought, and I think I wrote about it. I thought it was the end of my career because we're t- we're not talking about two or three weeks with bad sciatica. We're talking August about to now August through. March and it was a big part of the reason why I think the match my match quality dropped off in '97, picked up again in '98. Characters came on strong in '97, but if I had to pick a best match of the year for me, it'd probably be me and Triple H. September of '97, things were getting a lot better by then physically for me and uh, creatively as well. Cactus Jack, maybe yeah, Cactus Jack on the comeback. Um, but there was a pivotal moment where a uh, 
a, a Middle East tour was canceled. And that gave me two weeks off. And prior to the two weeks, we were looking at definite minor surgery, possible major surgery, and whatever God was, you know, what God was looking out for me. I'm not so sorry, not since you know, there's more than one. Just saying that I have whatever the situation might be, whether it was God looking out for me or whether it was just uh, nature taking its course. Whatever was pressing on my sciatic was largely relieved after that two week layoff. Wow! And I felt, and I didn't need. I did have, I did have the the minor uh, uh, injections done, but I avoided major the needle surgery. in the, yeah, the needle, in between right the right. discs. Yeah, uh, I think it's cortisone. Yeah. that coats it, and it can have an incredibly healing uh, for weeks needle. or months or yeah. whatever. Yeah. yeah. Um, and that gave me a, a second lease on life. But as we approached mania, uh, I wasn't sure that I would ever have a second, another mania. Are you trying things like the inversion tables and all that? Oh, yeah. I'm trying everything I can. I'm going to the chiropractor. I've got the inversion table. Uh, I'm going to uh, a guy that's got the uh, the table that's, that stretches you. Yep. Uh, I'm doing everything I can think of, all of it coming out of my pocket. Uh, and like I said, if I'm coming home, that if I've got three days off, that first day spent being super dead, the second day spent trying to heal up everything I can and running errands. So you didn't have a lot of free time. Were you in the back of your mind or actually planning with your wife, hey, what's a backup plan? Sure. Yeah. And I didn't know what it was. Yeah. We really didn't know what it was going to be. We had uh, we tried a couple of things, cactus jackets in '95, uh, which was a failure. Um, but you ran it like the back of magazine. Yeah, right? I ran yeah. it. Yeah, in the back of the motorcycle magazine. But but we were getting Pakistani uh, leather, which is going to be the antithesis of what the easy riders, uh, you know, readers would like. Uh, because it was so much cheaper to yeah. get in, I guess, water buffalo from Pakistan than it was cows from. The U.S. So the the cactus jackets was a failure. We did get into the surplus business, which meant that I I got a great cachet of WCW belts um, that actually sold at the gimmick table when I wasn't there. This is before now anyone can go online and order themselves uh, a replica belt. These were foam belts, but high quality. And so I was able to find through the surplus business. Uh, wrestling stuff that would sell for me so to make an extra like 200 300 a night when you weren't at the table was a pretty big deal yeah time for sure so you work uh bret hart for shotgun saturday night at webster hall in new york city and i can't believe this is real but i think this is the only time you're ever in a one-on-one match with him on tv on tv yep i think i only had two singles matches with brett one shotgun saturday night and the other one was uh, house show matches. Is one of two matches, house show matches. I wish I had on tape because they felt magical when they're taking place. The other one was one with Shawn Michaels at uh, Madison Square Garden, where we just tore the house down. Uh, but Brett really liked the mankind character. I remember when he uh, he and I got together. He asked what I like to do. I said, Brett, you know, this is supposed to have a really gritty feel. At that time, that's what Shotgun Saturday Night was. Raw originally was supposed to be raw because it's rough around the edges. 
And then with WCW applying that type of pressure, that quickly, you know, um, you know, became secondary or, or even eliminated completely, where Raw became the state-of-the-art, you know, ultra-slick uh, uh, production. But at that time, Shotgun Saturday Night was supposed to look really rough around the I office. loved it. And I said, Brad, I, I think we should just go out there and call it in the ring. There may have even been one botch in that I occasionally would not know which way to go on a neckbreaker. Uh, to this day, I don't know how guys and women know how, because there were a couple, that was like my, my botch. I, I did the same thing with Jerry Lawler at uh, one of the King of the Ring tournaments. Um, but I think so there was one mistake, and it wasn't what you'd say was an all-time classic, but it was really a good, solid match that I really enjoyed, and it really felt like we accomplished something special because not a word of it, you know, not a move had been thought of beforehand. So it's hard to compare and contrast that with your mind games match with Sean because you guys did lay yeah, that one yeah, out. Yeah. Um, and I'm not asking you to say, hey, who was a better opponent? And, and I know a lot of fans want to have the Mount Rushmore discussion. I'm not looking mm-hmm. for that. But on a scale of 1 to 10, uh, most of our listeners think Bret Hart was a 10 out of 10 in the ring because yeah. his stuff even today still stands up and there's yeah. you're able to suspend disbelief yeah. if that's the right phrase would you agree in the ring Brett's oh, a yeah. 10 Brett was amazing yeah. yeah and he had such a, a wide variety of great matches with a wide variety of opponents yes. so he could have the great match with a character you know character driven performer like Undertaker even before Taker became more uh, uh, match oriented you know yeah. and I think that was about the time that he and I uh, got together he told me he wanted to start trying more things that took him a little out of that character but somehow felt safely inside it if that makes any sense he made it work for the character uh but he wanted to expand what he could do but going back to brett he would have a great match with the consummate technician he would have a great match with the brawlers and all of his stuff looked great and and he he referred to his punches as being the rubber mallets because he laid that stuff in you know like uh he was a very believable worker who had great matches with everyone and was, a, you know, the guy, the kind of the glue that held, held WWE together uh, when they went a different direction from, from Hogan. Some and, tough times. Yeah, some tough times. Uh, so Monday Night Raw at the Sky Dome, which is a big time show. Yeah. I mean, the idea that, I mean, this is a company a few years prior to this is running events in, in high school gyms. And yeah. now they're at the Sky Dome. Uh, you're going to be teaming with Farouk in the main event to take on The Undertaker and Ahmed Johnson. It's a no-holds-barred match. Taker's going to get the win after Vader's interference backfires. And I guess it has to be said, you're not getting a lot of wins on TV here. <laughs> uh, we talked about the Godwins. It was a double countout. Yeah. And now, you know, not winning here either. Are you concerned that maybe Vince is losing confidence in you? Or do you think this is a contract thing? Or are you even in your head about that? And you're just worried about, I got to stay healthy. I think staying healthy was my biggest concern. Uh, it was hard to look down the road when you, you're not sure uh, how long a road you have. Um, I, even if I was losing, I was losing in high-profile matches. Yes. And there's that catch-22. You're the guy who can lose, and if not, keep your heat, keep your interest. That was, to me, interest was more important than heat always was, and that's one of the arguments that I'll have with, you know, the people who go look for the heat. I always wanted there to be interest, 
and I felt like the interest was there. But I realized I hadn't. I, I realized that I hadn't scored a victory in a while. I realized, like I said, that uh, when you can't beat the Godwins, that's yeah, not, not the formation of a super team. And keep in mind, Ahmed and Undertaker. That seems like an odd team. But at that time, Ahmed was over. Ahmed was over, and going back to when Barry Blaustein approached Mr. McMahon about doing this Beyond the Mat documentary, and Vince asked who he wanted to focus on. When Barry said me, and this is when I was part of WWE, Vince was really intrigued by that. And uh, Barry said he saw me as being a superstar or future, you know, a superstar all time and talking about like you know uh foundation of the company and vince told him ahmed mark merrill at that time so we're talking 96 at that time but now several months later you know ahmed is still really deeply in that mix and he's super over he left the company because he wouldn't put kurgan over which seems ludicrous you know you're talking about i'm a guy who's losing almost every night yeah, on the road. I'm not getting. I'm not piling up many TV victories, uh, and I'm okay with that. And Ahmed left the company because he didn't want to put over Kurgan in Houston. Uh, Ahmed at the time too. Um, you know, it's hard for us to wrap our head around what it was. Maybe in hindsight, because I know that he doesn't go on to have this huge career, but he was getting huge reactions. Yeah. A big power guy. And he wasn't necessarily a strong promo or phenomenal in the ring, but he did have a presence about yeah. him. And fans were reacting in a big way for him. So I see why they would they would go with him. But it doesn't feel like he really ever totally embraced wrestling culture, if that's even the right word. Because I don't hear a lot of the folks who worked with him say, oh, yeah, we rode together. I loved Ahmed. I don't know that he really knew enough about the business. Is that fair to say? I don't know. I don't know, Conrad. I know he came out of uh, Texas and, uh, you know, worked some with uh, whatever reincarnation world class was and caught a lot of attention as Tony Norris. Um, I don't know why they went with Ahmed Johnson, but it was a cool name. Um, Allegedly, uh, Buck Johnson is what Bill Watts wanted. Buck Johnson. Yeah. That got shot down. Ahmed instead. Ahmed Johnson. I uh, remember Farouk came out of the gate uh, with uh, Farouk with the blue helmet. Yeah. Came out, and uh, Ahmed was on the shelf for a few months after yep. that. I think it was kidney. a kidney. Yeah. Kick to the kidney. Not much you can do. Where, you know, it's Mother Nature's going to, you know, uh, going to put you on hold for a while. It's not something you've got your way through. Yeah. So uh, that hurt. Uh, but I think at one time he was he teamed up at a main maybe it was named ninety seven with the Road Warriors. Yeah, and and we're yeah. going to talk about wrestling in Chicago. 13, yeah, but that was even marketed locally as the co-main event. Yeah, not Brett and Austin, but Road Warriors and Ahmed against the Nation was marketed locally as the co-main event. Yeah, that's pretty remarkable when you think about it. It really was. Yeah, because Road Warriors, despite not being from Chicago. It's their spiritual home. Uh, right, their spiritual home. Ahmed's big, and I remember that feeling like it was up there with the yeah. top couple matches on the card. So on Shotgun Saturday night, you're going to do a match at the Mirage Nightclub taking on Davey Boy Smith. And at the time, he's one half of the tag team champions. Vader's going to help you get the win over him. And now the wheels are in motion for a WrestleMania match. You and Vader against Owen and Davey. When do you find out that's the match? Do you know... Just that day at Shotgun, or do you find out ahead of time 
hey, here's what we're thinking. Since you yeah. poo-pooed the Mark Mero thing, we're going to do this tag thing yeah. instead. Whenever I got the inkling that it was Davey and uh, Owen, yeah, I, was, I was... You knew that could be good. Yeah, I was greatly relieved. Loved those guys. I think I was under the ring uh, when the... When when Brett and uh, Owen and Davey had a great match for the European title, I was under the ring, and that's when the 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 Hart Foundation, the faction. I'm talking about the not not Jim and Brett, not Jim Neidhart and Brett, but talking about Owen and Davey and Brett. The start of the Canadian form. What is, were they? The Hart Foundation. Yes. Or, okay. Yes. Um, and uh, Brett came in and brought uh, Davey and Owen together. And I'm underneath the ring, and uh, Owen, Brett gets Owen to embrace uh, Davey, and and Owen mouths the words, I love you. And I'm under the ring getting ready for my thing with Undertaker, I think. You know, we talk about how I spent a great deal of time under that ring for hours on end as a personal rib on me. (laughs) Uh, But thinking what a privilege it was to watch that match and then to see how Owen could go from being this amazing world-class competitor to making me pop underneath the ring with this little, you know, I love you thing. And they formed, and that was the start of that uh, uh, Heart Foundation, which was very successful. Yeah. 97 is a fun year, man. So around this same time, Raw is going to expand to two hours, uh, I think beginning of February. And they're trying to really make a go at WCW, who at this point is firmly in control of these Monday Night Wars. Uh, as a wrestling fan yourself, you had been in WCW, and it felt like when you were there, boy, this is going to be second fiddle to Vince forever. Mm-hmm. And now you're here, and you see, well, the tables have turned. What do you attribute so much of the success I mean, is it just Hogan, the NWO, or is it more of the WWF just wasn't hitting the mark like they could have been? Probably a combination yeah. of the two. I remember watching the show. It was tough to watch both shows because uh, you're on the road yeah, and you're on one of the shows at the same time. Uh, but the WCW show had a replay, a West Coast replay, so occasionally I could catch the shows and the match that struck me was luger and booker and i remember luger and booker had a really good match and then luger cut a promo and it's not saying it was an all-time it wasn't like a dusty ask or flair promo but he just said he said something he said and booker t's gotten really good it was a way of elevating booker yeah like i think that that people started to see booker in a different way as if he could be part part of the card and i just remember thinking to myself oh they've got the hot hand They've got the hot hand. That as much as I wanted to believe our show was better, it wasn't better. Um, it was still kind of going by formula. You're still leaning pretty heavily on one-sided squash matches. WCW, for the time I was in there, you know, they would have basically one good match on a two-hour show. And the rest of it were squash matches. When Bill Watts came in, Bill had some great ideas, but he was a believer in the hard camera shot. He didn't want to see guys calling spots, and I understand that's you know that's an issue. But all, but I don't think it's worth losing no. the aesthetics of, especially when we've gotten used to getting in there on the action. That's part of what makes wrestling wrestling is that we are coming right into your living room with the facial expressions and everything. And now we're we're losing the the competitive matches. We're going back to a more one sided uh, 
uh, match format, which was bad for wrestling, and now the wars hit, the the Nash and Hogan thing is a bullseye. A Hogan joins the group, you know, and eventually they overplayed that hot hand. Of course. Right, to the point where it became, you know, comical how many people were in the NWO and yeah. they had to start subdividing into Red and Wolfpack. And I, I guess if you weren't in the NWO at a certain point, you know, you probably weren't in WCW unless you were DDP. Right? <laughs> and that's what made DDP stand out is he was kind of like a lone wolf at that time. Yeah. He was apart from the Wolfpack. But yeah, they had the hot hand and we did not. You know, when we're talking about the success of WCW in that era, a lot of that success uh, is in large part due to somebody who doesn't get the credit. That's Kevin Sullivan. Kevin Sullivan was one of the head bookers, maybe the head booker, depending on who you believe. But even Bischoff gives him his flowers and says, nobody booked heat like Kevin Sullivan. Mm -hmm. And I've always found it interesting where seemingly everyone has worked everywhere. Kevin Sullivan never worked for WWE. And when I had a conversation with Kevin about that once, he said he met with Stephanie once Mm -hmm. and she asked for a resume and Kevin Sullivan didn't have a resume. Uh, And I understand that's not necessarily an indictment on Stephanie because she lives in a corporate world. So in a corporate world, everyone has a resume. But to ask Kevin Sullivan, what would I know you from? Uh, Well, the NWO, Goldberg, we did some things. Why do you think Kevin Sullivan never had a shot with WWE? I don't know. I remember talking to Kevin. Maybe it was in 96 or 97. Uh, He wanted to be part of creative. He thought that we could do what we had done with the Slaughterhouse on a bigger scale. Uh, You know, you, you saw my live show. And I talk glowingly about Sullivan. Yeah. At that point, what really kept the early cactus, the early 1989, 1990 Cactus Jack alive in WCW was the fact that uh, Sullivan and Corny, they had a hand. They were the ones who did creative on the losers. Uh, you know, like that doesn't sound like a very uh, important position, but they. What I meant, but what I mean by that is that. Uh, Jim Hurd left them alone to do what they wanted to do, and they came up with this great underneath angle of having me attack my partners. Yes. Uh, and and it worked so well. Kevin came out from behind the uh, announce booth, and we formed Sullivan Slaughterhouse. And that's where, you know, just recapping what we talked about in the past, this great little angle, which wasn't meant to be on top, but it was such a great character builder, and it made me you know stand apart. You know, I, Kevin would look over for the tag, and Kevin wrestled a very physical style, very believable brawling style. There wasn't a lot of Kevin getting together with opponents to go over the spots. It was basically, you know, Kevin really, you know, really roughing up these guys, not taking liberties, but you knew when you were in there it wasn't going to be a fun five minutes for yeah. those guys, right? The tree of woe, he was hitting you with everything he had. The punches, the kicks, you know, were really solid in there. But he was a great creative guy, and he's brought out the best in in these angles that went on to be, you know, the, the home run angles for WCW. But even as a performer, as the games master with uh, Rick Steiner and Mike Rotundo, like, that's great stuff, yeah. you know? And then, they, you know, they later added Dr. Death, Steve Williams, and... But that was a great, that was a great faction, great faction. And everything that Kevin did, I think, worked on a certain level because he was a believer in heat. 
And, you know, from time to time, WCW would change its uh, emphasis on heat and how much someone was allowed to get. You know, like when we were the slaughterhouse, Kevin had the whitest butcher smock. Right. Because there was not supposed to be any trace of blood. To the point where I think when Kevin was working with Norman the Lunatic, uh, Kevin he, like, hit uh, Mike Shaw with a painting, and the idea was the painting had red paint on it, so you were able to get some semblance of color. Yes. As silly as it was, you know, there was you know not a drop of blood allowed. I'm not saying that was silly, but I'm saying the idea that you had to get you know, red paint involved. Right. To make uh, something look like, uh, you know, enhanced physicality. That was the hand we were working with. They yeah. had a much freer hand. Uh, maybe Bischoff's doing, probably. You know, I just go and said they definitely Bischoff had a big hand in making WCW more important in the Turner organization. And uh, Kevin was a big part of that process. So you talked to him in 96, 97 about... Maybe trying to do some stuff yeah. with WWE. Vince responded to me. He said he'd be interested in having him in creative, not really interested at that point of having him in the ring. Um, and it didn't come to fruition. Kevin caught back on with WCW, was one of the major uh, power players. Yeah. And also, you know, it, you know, as my name applies to it, he was you know, said to have watched uh, the Hell in a Cell match. Uh, me and Undertaker in 98 turned to whoever else was in that room with him from the booking committee. He said, it's over, brother. What's over? The Monday Night War. They just won it. That was how he felt. Like, he could see that that was going to be a, you know, a watershed moment. moment. Yeah. So, the February pay-per-view is announced. It's going to be Vader taking on Bret Hart, uh, taking on Steve Austin, taking on The Undertaker. Of course, this is Final Four from Chattanooga. Yeah. The idea being these are the last four guys in the Rumble when there was some controversy involved. Uh, so, on Superstars, while Vader and Bear are cutting a promo about the match, uh, they're in the ring, and you come down the aisle asking why it can't be Final Five, and where is your uh, title shot, Uncle Paul, which is... Pretty hilarious. Yeah. Um, and then Lowell Mass, of course, February 13th, it all changes. It's the Smile. now infamous yeah. Thursday, Raw Thursday. Um, it's also the day where Rocky Maivia, who'd he ever beat, uh, becomes the Intercontinental Champion. Uh, for the very first time, and then Sean loses his smile. And you're in the arena that night. And listen, Sean is a, a different person. I think you even referred to him a couple of weeks ago as Bad Sean. Good Sean. Bad this Sean, is, good Sean. Yeah, so so Bad Sean here, a lot of people thought, ah, that injury is bullshit. He just doesn't want to return the favor to Brett at WrestleMania. Um, I'm not saying you necessarily felt that, but you're there in the building. Was the consensus from the locker room, mm, I don't know that he's doing the right thing here. Just help me out with my dates here. Uh, Sean loses his smile before or after that fatal four-way. So it's the month, It's the Thursday before. So it was supposed to determine a number one contender okay, and who's going to go on to WrestleMania to get the gotcha. shot. Okay. But then that Thursday, Sean forfeits the title. So now Final Four, which is in a few days, will determine who's the world champion. This is the one I, I want to turn into a Final Five. Yes. <laughs> Uh, I remember when I saw um, Sean losing his smile as being very emotional. Yes. This is just my recollection. Yes. That we weren't second-guessing it, and I didn't second-guess it until the Slammies, 
when I saw Sean all but do a back handspring on that uh, on that stage. You know that he and uh, he and Brett got the uh, a match of the year, uh, and he said, "I beat you that one too." Um, it was still unusual at that time because of kayfabe still being alive. Yeah, a little bit. alive and well. You know, maybe on resuscitation. But it was still unusual to me to see two people on the stage together collecting a match of the year award. Yes. Now we see it on Sports Center with uh, Sasha. This is also the era, though, where Mankind Invaders show up in tuxedos and their masks. <laughs> so. <laughs> Kayfabe's alive. We're wearing masks. We're wearing masks. Leon was still wearing his mask at the Hall of Fame until the you know, year before he, he passed away. Uh, but yeah, you, yeah, we were there in the masks, and I won the, a Slammy for Lucius Screw. And at that point, I was sitting with the headbangers. I think I even threw them the the trophy. And this is also the night that Leon suffers an injury because of a prank that Bret Hart plays. So we'll get into that momentarily because that's leading up to our our mania match, it's a big which is moment. just a couple nights later. Uh, yeah, we're both wearing the, the we're both wearing our masks. We're protecting kayfabe. Going back to Sean, I'm sitting there and I'm seeing Sean, who does not look like a guy it's with a career-ending knee injury. But up until that moment on stage, I didn't doubt it. You know, he lost a smile and injured his knee. And it's important. Now we look at losing your smile, you know, and as we understand, sometimes you have to step away because. Yeah, mental health is a different conversation now than it was back then. Right, right. But I would say losing your smile is a mental health issue. Of course. And you get worn down. Uh, There's no rigor of the road to me like WWE. Um, And to be that guy with that weight on your shoulders, especially pre attitude era when we became that collective WWE juggernaut. Uh, before that, there was more pressure on the main events to draw, and your tenure as champion was seen as being a success or failure based on house show attendance. So it's down, yeah. and you're hurting, and I don't think we're speaking out of school. He's probably over-medicating. So yeah, he'll he's, admit it, yeah. he's not himself in any capacity at that point. Right. Yeah. And it's not what it was. It's not. There's this. Uh, there's this little conversation I had. This might seem like a tangent I'm going off, off on. But there's this story in uh, uh, my Santa memoir about uh, being in the front row at uh, Madison Square Garden for a Knicks game, and uh, and uh, I'm sitting there. And this time, like like I am today, you know, I'm over 300 pounds. I'm taking up more than my allotted cushion. And so, <laughs> beautiful young lady sits. I see her approaching to sit down. Turns out she's with her mom, and I can see the hesitation on their face because people are sitting in the front row. They don't want to sit next to to me, you know. If you're sitting next to Spike Lee or Ben Stiller, you know, and guys that were there, that that's you sit next to this guy. And so, uh, I don't think this is a well-known story. Uh, so I understand this poor young lady. She's like sitting like this. If I'm to her, her right side, she's all but huddled over. And now the the MSG team comes over to me, tells me they're going. Have I told you the story? No. Okay. All right. Okay. It's a pretty good story about uh, timing and and it's still that. Uh, I'll tell you why I enjoyed it after I tell you the line. 
uh, once they come over to me and say, okay, we're going to talk to you at the end of the first quarter. We have about 45 seconds. Now they're talking to me during a one minute timeout. So by the time they walk away from me, there's probably 20 seconds left in the timeout. And the young lady says to me, oh, so they're going to interview you. Huh? I said, yeah. She said, about what? I said, about a book I wrote. So now we got five, six, seven seconds left. She goes, what's your book about? I said, it's about my time in prison. And buzzer hits, timeout's over. And the poor woman is just oh huddled like this. There's a photo where it's some, it looked kind of like, she looks kind of like my daughter, right? Beautiful young lady. And it looks like we've known each other for years in the photo because what the photo is, it's of me on the scoreboard uh, and she sees that it's me being inducted into the, the WWE Hall of Fame. And then they show me over there, you know, and she goes, oh, wrestler, huh? And and so she tells me that she was a uh, a rocket. And uh, and then she's, oh, that must have been incredible being a big Christmas fan like I am. And I said, what was that like? She goes, oh, sometimes it was like Groundhog's Day. And I said, I bet you're wrestling and and uh, dancing have more than you think in common. And she said, why is that? I said, because I bet there were moments when you had to remind yourself that you were doing exactly what you always dreamed of. And she said, how did you know? I said, it's not that different than from what we do. So as that applies to wrestling, there are those moments that you have to really remind yourself, this is exactly where I wanted to be. Yep. You wonder why you're not getting that same emotional boost from it. You know, we talk about uh, they being, you know, the pop, the need yeah. for the pop. Triple H, refer, you know, refer to Chasing the Dragon, which is a drug reference, but it's the same idea. Of, we get it. Uh, why can't I feel that way now? And maybe it's because it's become your job. And... It's and it's again, it's so hard to hit those emotional peaks so regularly to do it in a business where you're away from your family uh, for weeks. You know, even though it was 10 days on, three days off, sometimes you'd be away for weeks on end. WWE, before they got to that more, you know, humane schedule, guys would be on the road for 90 days at a time. Randy Orton remembers seeing his dad for like seven days in a single year. Wow. That things were really tough, but nobody wanted to hop off that train because you didn't yeah. know how long it was gonna going to ride for. So now we see what Sean was going through. At that time, people would snicker about losing your smile. Yes. But man, you're talking about a guy in his prime no longer feeling what it was that he felt when he got into the business and needing to step away. You know, knee, knee injury and the the smile issue, uh, the smile issue being probably a lot more prominent than the knee. Yeah, for sure. Wrestling fans, it's time to win with Zinn. Get to WrestlingPrizes.com to register for your chance to win one of four once-in-a-lifetime digital Q&A sessions with wrestling legends Ric Flair, Eric Bischoff, Jim Ross, or Mick Foley. Winners also get an autographed replica championship belt and a prize pack from Zinn, America's number one nicotine pouch. Register once per day, now through July 15th, WrestlingPrizes.com. No purchase necessary to enter or win. Open to U.S. residents 21 and over. Void where prohibited. For official rules, visit WrestlingPrizes.com. Warning, this product contains nicotine. Nicotine is an addictive chemical. Who's going to take care of your family if something happens to you? What would they do without your income? If you don't have a plan, you need to go to GoliathLife.com. Get a quick quote for more than 20 carriers. You don't even have to leave the house. 
If you need a medical exam, they'll send somebody to your house or office. You're in total control. You pick the rates, you pick the payments, you pick the terms. You're in total control, but it gives you and your family peace of mind. What if something happens to your income? Hurry to GoliathLife.com. So you're not actually on the final four pay-per-view, but your tag team partner, Vader, winds up having a hell of a mm-hmm. performance, but most famously gets a nasty cut yeah. that makes the cover of Raw Magazine and, man, it has everybody talking. What did you think of the match? As a rule of thumb, I've heard guys say that, you know, four ways can be a cluster, but mm-hmm. that was about as good as one could really be. really good, and it was Leon, man. You would just think if Vince is now, whether I don't know if Vince calling that match. Whether he's calling it or whether he's watching backstage, and I think he would have been calling it, he's still, you're completely captured in that 13-inch monitor. You're calling what you see on the monitor, not what you see in the ring. Uh, And that's what makes, you know, jumping ahead, that's what makes being an announcer so difficult with Vince being in your ear because you're trying to, you're trying to live in that, 13-inch fantasy world and bring that alive for the viewers, and that's difficult to do when somebody's in your ear. But regardless of whether Vince is watching on the monitor, ringside, or backstage, you would think he would see, all right, this guy's money. That was a great performance. I was there. I was in. The, I was there with my wife and my two older children because it was in Chattanooga, which was only two hours from Atlanta, yep. where I was living at the time. We drove there. I, I think I was expected to be there, even though I wasn't on the card. It's the China and debut, too. The China debut. Uh, she shook Marlena like a rag doll. Yes. And that was the first night I met China. And my wife was so complimentary of Joni. And Joni was like soaking it up because she didn't know, you know, she really, do you really think so? You know, my, my wife's telling her how impressive it was. And thus began, you know, for me, a great friendship with Joni, you know, seeing her backstage after that big uh, premiere debut. I think was it Triple H and uh, Two Cold Scorpio that night or? Well, Goldust was out there. Okay. Okay. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Okay. Okay. Um, Yes. Okay. Yeah. All right. All right. But, uh, oh, yeah. I'm sorry. I'm jumping around. But I do know that I was in the audience. It was another indication that the Cactus Jack character wasn't as widely known because now not only am I watching, but I'm watching it as a guy who's on TV every week, but I've got a baseball hat. I no mask. I've got no mask. My hair's all pulled up under my head. No one sees the, the unique mankind hairstyle. And I'm pretty much able to watch that match as an unknown. Because only the diehard Cactus Jack people are going to know. Again, we're sitting in a section, yeah. you know, uh, hats pulled down. I'm watching with my kids. And Leon puts on, uh, you know, a great performance. For sure. Uh, the Steve Austin character is catching, you know, has caught fire. It's really something. But even though, you know, we're, we're coming to a head with Brett and, uh, and Steve just a month before Mania, to me, Leon steals the show that night and what's crazy is he doesn't have major plans at mania taker's going to become the man mm-hmm. at mania and austin and, and brett are going to steal the show and vader well you're off to do tag stuff now mm-hmm. it just it feels weird but the next night on raw in nashville sid winds up beating brett hart to win the title so the plans are in motion now it's going to be sid and taker headlining wrestlemania austin and brett are going to be underneath I think in hindsight, everyone remembers the Austin Brett match more, but the the main the the mania show is all about the world title. It's mm-hmm. got to go on last, and even if it wasn't the original plan, 
not a bad deal to celebrate the undertaker and all his time there right mm-hmm. So you're on the European tour right after this, working with Davey, Brett, Sid, Ahmed, and Rocky. Any memories of that tour or the matches? That doesn't involve me and Al Snow. And uh, Is this the exposure this, situation? This would, be, yeah, this would be the red light district. Uh, this is my greatest memory of that tour, uh, is, is going to the red light district. Okay. And... Uh, <laughs> This used to be a, this used to be uh, a story in my show. Okay. Before I I went in a more PG direction because it's <laughs> it's not a, it's not a PG story with the way I used to tell it. I'll give you the nuts and bolts of it. Basically, um, me, Al Snow, uh, a wrestler who specifically said he doesn't want to be mentioned. And I have to respect that because he has a private life, life near. And another wrestler who, whose name I won't mention, but is the biggest star in the world right now. Copy that. Go down to the red light district just to investigate. Right? See what it's about. See what it's about. Heard all about it. It's just this crazy situation where women are in the windows. Like, like literally windows. Like you're shopping. shopping. Yeah. Like you're window shopping. And uh, we opt not to go in that direction, but we do go into a club where a live sex act is taking place, you know. And there is uh, a man uh, <laughs> and a woman. Typically, yeah. yeah. a man and a woman performing a live sex act on stage. And this guy is putting on a performance for the ages. And Al Snow realizes that... He's doing it while wearing a knee brace. Like, he's working hard. And, <laughs> and that resonates with all of us. We go, oh, my God, he's working hard, you know. So in the telling of the story, this is where I say that uh, I'm the guy who recognizes the knee brace and he's working hard. And I mention it to the other wrestler's name won't be mentioned. I mentioned it to the guy whose also name won't be mentioned, but is the biggest star in the universe right now. And we all look at the knee brace because how could you not when I'm specifically, you know, calling sure. your attention to it. And then in my telling of the story, I mentioned to Al and Al refused to take his eyes off that man. You know, this is back when it was fun to, you know, to rib each other. Sure. Uh, and in truth, it was Al who pointed it out to me. But what we did see was that when the act was over, right? The big finish. The big. There was a big finish, right? Uh, <laughs> a high spot, you might big, say. Yeah, the high spot, big finish. Then this guy uh, just limps so nobly over to the far corner of the venue. And we know for a fact, Godfather reminded us, limping, it ain't easy. That's right. He goes over to the far corner. He sits down and he puts his arm around his real love, who was a dude. And so not only is he working hurt, but this guy has a commitment to his craft. He's working with someone other than the desired gender. Sure. Right? And he shows us what it's like to work under (laughs) duress and put on a performance for the ages. And without that performance in mind, I'm not sure I could have gotten up from that second fall through the Hell in a Cell. Because if that guy can do if it. he can do it, then I... He can do that. If he can do that, working hurt, working with someone other than his preferred gender... Then That's the ultimate kayfabe, too. Certainly, yeah. Certainly, I can find it in myself to get up from Hell in a Cell. 
that exceeds uh, any expectation I had for a memory of that tour. So thank you for that. You want to know what I remember about working the matches? Not a damn no, thing. No, no. Uh, this, again, your mind gravitates to what made the impression on you, and that is that guy, right? That guy putting on that performance. Don't remember a darn thing about that tour. Uh, so you uh, you missed the Raw from Manhattan Center where we see the ECW invasion. Is that – I mean, do you wish you could have been a part of that? I mean, it was a pretty historic show. I don't know what you would have really done with it, but to see Sabu jump off the letters and Taz is there and yeah, the yeah. BWO is parodying the NWO on Monday Night Raw and – who would have thought at that point? At that point, you would see the Blue Mini in a WWE ring, or the Eliminators, or the mm-hmm, Dudleys, mm-hmm. and it just felt like something that, in hindsight, it would have been cool if you were there. Do you think Vince wanted to keep you separate because of that? I don't know why I wasn't there. Uh, Feels like something that would be right up your alley. Maybe he was doing me a favor because of the back issue. Now, remember, there'd been the tease of a ECW invasion in September of '96 at your mind game show. At my mind game show. Because I remember Gerald Briscoe, whether it was a work or not, you know, he wasn't, he said, look, these guys are here. We don't know what they're here for. Expect anything. So now, not only do I have the biggest match of my life, but there is the potential for uh, unscheduled run-in. We, I don't know who's working with who. But I do know they asked me to go out and cut up promo before that match so that I wouldn't be cheered. Um, and I guess it was effective in that sense. The guys did not hit the ring uh, during my match. But it was they were free part- for all. Yeah. yeah. Uh, but now when they go to a, a, a more solid relationship with the ECW invasion, I'm not part of it for reasons I, I'm not I'm not sure of. Just so you know, uh, Bruce told me once that Briscoe did not know. So only... Paul and Vince and Bruce knew. So when Briscoe's going out there to stop the physicality, he uh, Bruce says, "Hey, when you get down there, tell Paul Bachwinkle." And that's when he says Briscoe's whole demeanor changed. Like, why didn't you tell me? Yeah, like, yeah. Because they wanted to keep it quiet. And less people who know the better. Yeah, absolutely. Less people who know the better. So Raw the week after is taped from Germany, and you're going to lose to Sid. And this is the infamous Raw that would lead to Vince freaking out about production. And apparently it leads to Vince Russo having a bigger hand in creative. Do you remember Vince not being happy with the look of the show? I don't. I don't. I'd heard that afterwards. I do know that uh, when I worked with Sid, the next day we're getting ready to board a plane, whether it's within Germany or going home, I don't remember. And Steve Austin goes, hell, kid, great match with Sid last night. And I, hey, thanks, Steve. And then he jumped all over me. And it was the first time I remember Steve, (laughs) when I say browbeating me, in a fun way, but letting me know that he thought it was a stinker by, you know, Cactus Jack or Mankind standards. Uh, You know, with a big guy like Sid, I thought thought it was okay. I thought, I mean, uh, okay enough to the point where, uh, it didn't didn't strike me as a rib when Steve told me it was a great match. I didn't think it was a great match, but I thought it was respectable. You think it was terrible, yeah. Then he jumped all over me, and that's why I was hesitant to embrace his fondness for the uh, the Yerpel, uh Mr. Sacco debut. What if he's just messing with I, you? I thought he was messing with me because I was ready for him because of that February 1997 reaction. So you reach out to Vince um, at once you're back home. And, and you're coming off of a vacation 
and and you're saying, hey, uh, my back's in terrible shape, yeah. and you're going to ask for some time off. Right. And that feels like maybe the last thing a wrestler ever wants to do yeah. because there's always this concern of, you know, obviously in this era, if you're not working, you're not going to get paid or yeah. certainly not as much. But also, what if I lose my spot, brother? Um, do you have to work yourself up to that call or is it just at this point, it's inevitable, it's unavoidable. Let's just get it over with. Yeah, it's just so, ah, man, I don't want to use agonizing as hyperbole. So hopefully I've built up enough stock when I say agonizing. We believe it when you say it. Agonizing. Um, I didn't care about my, you know, I didn't care about anything, but just relieving some of that pain. I do remember that little vacation. It was like a three-day uh, Valentine's Day vacation to uh, Hershey, Pennsylvania. Uh, and I do know I went that three or four days without eating any chocolate. So that shows you I was pretty serious about trying to keep my weight down at the time. Come back, and I remember asking Vince, and he like you can hear him thumbing through papers. He goes, oh, it looked like we have uh, one day off right here. And I go, one day, and then I hear him, oh. <laughs> and he tells me he's going to try to arrange for, you know, a handful of days off. You took a week off. Yeah. And then you're back working with Goldust. Uh, you're going to put Goldust over at all the house shows. Yeah. Um, Which I'm good with. Yeah. Their house shows, I believe, you know, you send people home from the house shows happy. I have no issue because Goldust was a great character. Yeah. And at that time, he's a lot of stock there he's too. Becoming, turn, he's becoming babyface yep. at that time. Uh, so Goldust was a great character. I have no qualms about putting Goldust over. We'd been partners largely non televised in house shows, but we've got chemistry. The characters work well together. Uh, I have no issue with that. So Worcester, March 10th, is the debut of the new Raw is War set. What do you think of the rebranding? I mean, Nitro seemingly had been way ahead for a while, and now you're getting a new look and feel. Long overdue, huh? I like it. It's a little bit, I think you could say it's a precursor of the Attitude Era. For sure. We're definitely trying to have some more Attitude on our show. Uh, I always look at the dawn of the Attitude Era as being that uh, group meeting we had where Vince says, the uh, and I wish I could pinpoint the exact month, uh, but it's '97, and he realizes that the characters, some of the characters of the past, the more one-dimensional characters, are not going to work for us. And at that point, I think the mankind character had been greatly aided by that interview I did with Jim Ross. Yep. Uh, that made that finally turned Mr. McMahon into a fan. But I, but now going back to February, Raw's War is a precursor of the Attitude Era. So you and Vader team up in the main event to uh, take on and actually beat Taker and Sid after what? Sid power bombs Taker to uh, set up their their main event. Yeah, right? of course. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, Ken Shamrock's brought into the WWF at this time too. Uh, that whole ECW invasion episode is the first time we see him, but he becomes a more regular part. Uh, what did you think of Ken the first time you met him? Well, Ken was the world's, world's most dangerous man at that point. Like, yeah. legit, right? So going back to Leon, what he brought to the table is Leon worked that really believable style. Yeah. That I, within a month or two, I, I, Ken's first uh, uh, debut was against was against the MMA guy from the Lions. You know, the Lions Den. It was yes, and it was less than awesome. Yeah, less than awesome. Even with a lot of blood, yeah, it didn't seem to make sense. Uh, but by the time he works with Leon, they have a barn burner of a match 
that looks like it could be legit. Because At Leon, the Taker's Revenge show, right? Yeah, I think yeah. so. I think so. So what was great about Kenny is that he didn't have to become as good as he did. You know, like, he, what are you going to do if he doesn't want to play by the rules we're playing by? He'll whip your ass. Yeah. yeah everybody knows that. And instead, he becomes a, a very good worker. Yep. You know, I would say a great worker. Uh, he's got, he's so intense. He's in the zone. He's got the great credibility, which he then uses to help other people. Yeah. With their cred- so it looks like, hey, if you can hang with Shamrock, you know, you, you've got to be able to, just in fans' minds, because of the legitimacy he had, uh, it, it kind of helped us all. And, um, and it, you know, it probably my greatest moment with Ken was the three-way match with, uh, with Dwayne. And I guess that was 98. We're jumping ahead. But Ken was really a great hand. And I've got a tie that I used to wear and later went on to buy it for a dollar off eBay where it's, you know, the guys who were seen as the the big players in the Attitude Era. Yeah. And it's Undertaker. It's Triple H. It's Kane. It's me. It's Rock. It's Shamrock. Yeah. So he is that kind of a guy. At that time, and if he did not choose to go back into the uh, MMA world, there's no telling. No telling. No telling. But I think MMA is where his heart was. So, an MSG on March 16th, there's a Vader and Taker casket match. And of course, you come out of the casket during the match, put the claw on Taker, and help Vader get the win. I, I take it this is like the ultimate rib. If we can't put him under the ring, let's stick his ass in the casket. <laughs> well,. I would have found a way to get from underneath the ring into the casket. That was part of the magic of WWE. So I would not have been in a casket for five hours. Or well, maybe I did. Oh, no, no. I would have had to have been under the ring the whole day because that was the rib on me, right? No reason to break that rib just yet. I only found out like maybe 2014 that that didn't have to be that way. And that was where I... Did they give you like a little mattress pad down there? I, I believe there was a blue. I believe there was a blue. So there's a blue mat that go around the ring. Blue mat and a you know something to pee in if you need it, and you have a monitor under there, and then all the little toys, you know, uh, kendo sticks and chairs and those type of things, are under there. But it's the rib on me because I'm under there for five or six hours. And and I, let me give context here for a minute. This is pre smartphones. Yeah. There's nothing to do under there. Right. Nothing. There's no light. It's not like you can read a book. Right. And it's not like you can, you know, scroll Twitter. You're just listening to guys pound away at the mat and fans hoot and holler for hours on end. Yeah. And the de- the sound under the air is almost deafening. Yes. And so do you wear a headset? No. No. You just you try to pee before you go out there. You hope you won't have to pee. I was heard, I was told that a Kurt Henning rib was when there were like four guys under the ring and he brought the fart spray, which is just you know. Our little par- shit. <laughs> yeah, it's yeah. real. But- he may. He may. <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> but I, I didn't. I didn't have fart spray with me, and I was by myself under there. It would have been nice to have some company. Uh, Hornswoggle fell asleep once, right? Yeah, probably. He spent a great amount of time under there. I'm not sure if they... I think he fell asleep and missed it once. Did, did they smart him up to the rib, or did he have to go under there for I hours? I think he's finding out right now. That he did not, didn't need time. to be that way. Yeah, yeah. I didn't need, need to be that way. But when I was under there, I was under there for a while. And I don't care who you are, how tough you are. It's not... 
in our nature to feel comfortable while getting buried alive. And it's not in our nature to feel comfortable in a coffin. Yeah. And so we do both of them. Given my choice, I'd rather be in a coffin than getting buried alive. Yeah. Um, but it's still an uncomfortable thing, especially when the boys in the back play a rib on you and don't let you out for minutes. So it was, it's not, it's, 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 it's ideal. yeah, it's less than ideal. So Taker gets the advantage uh, as Vader and Paul run off. You get put in the casket, rolled into the back. Uh, and then Syracuse is uh, the go-home Raw. And the scene with this infamous Bret Hart promo after the Sid Cage match that everybody was talking about. Um, as a reminder, well, the, people know what happened. But Navy Boy beat Vader by the Q after you interfere. It's a big brawl. Owen's involved. And now we're, we're on a... What was the Brett? What was the Brett interview? So, if you recall, it was a cage match, and afterwards they they go to commercial, they come back. Sid lost. Sid won. Brett was was cheated, so he flips out. He pushes Vince McMahon oh, yeah, down, yeah. and he you know says "goddamn" into the microphone, and this is bullshit, and blah blah blah. And I mean, it was a pretty strong promo with a lot of foul language, and there was an overrun, and apparently it was all approved and blessed. But I think you could go back and you could say that Monday Night Raw is probably the first time that attitude was really a thing. Yeah, Maybe they weren't yeah, calling yeah, it that. Yeah. Yeah. But you didn't have Brett, this you know all-time babyface at that point, saying GD, and, and no, that wasn't a thing. And, and here it happened. Uh, but it was also almost an acknowledgement that Vince is the boss. He's yeah. not just right. an announcer. right. Uh, and then Stone Cold came on the monitor or the, the Jumbotron, if I remember it. He said something like, Brett, if you've been screwed as many times as you said, you've just struck oil by now. And here comes Sid. And, but it was a nice way to build WrestleMania. Yeah. And it's a nice way to get the consummate champion into a feud that doesn't revolve around a title. Yes. So that you have the title, you know, between Undertaker and Sid, which is billed as the main event. But you clearly have this great feud with Brett, who is the most beloved wrestler in the company, against this shooting star. I won't say shooting star because Steve, once he got there, yeah. stayed there. But you have this rocket taken off in Steve Austin. And now I'll argue that uh, at least in the top five great Bret Hart matches is a match that has nothing to do with the title, but everything to do with uh, uh, with pride. Yeah, and it gave you like a little tease of what was to come with the big double turn. Yeah. You got to see this harder edge of Brett, but Shamrock's shorts were pretty tight that night, weren't yes, they? Like, Not a, I, did he look? Take a look at the shorts that Sean wore as with, guest with, referee. With, yes. Say nobody's going to outdo me when it comes to the short <laughs> shorts. <laughs> it's funny you wear trunks, and that's fine. But if your shorts aren't down almost to your knees, we're offended. you were offended. And it's like post 80s basketball where everyone wore the short shorts. Yeah. And uh, yeah, Ken's wearing some tight, he's wearing some tight shorts. Uh, but and he's wearing no sleeves on his referee shirt, That's right? Correct. But he is the acknowledged baddest man. You know, he was the world's most dangerous man. Yeah. He play, him being in that is a big deal. And you've got the double turn with um, Steve and, and Brett in one of the great WrestleMania matches yeah. of all time, uh, which is, uh, like you said, maybe not even the semi-main event, 
by local Chicago standards. It was third from the top. Yeah. But in my mind, it's the real main event. Yeah. Um, but let's talk about your match because you're excited, I guess. I mean, hey, we're hurting, but we're, we got a little bit of time off. But we're going to get a WrestleMania payday. We're finally going to be in a WrestleMania. Thank goodness it's not against Mark Mero. Mm-hmm. But it's a tag match. And not only is it a tag match, it's two heel teams. Yeah. That's a little unusual for a WrestleMania match. It's normally a baby face versus yeah. a heel that's been built for months and months, once upon a time. And now, maybe not as much, but you know there's some very capable performers that you're very familiar with. Yeah, yeah. And, uh, and you no, know, like Davies, the guy I had the second match in my career with, right? Right. Against the British Bulldogs. So Davies, a legend, and Owen is one of the great workers of his generation. And who can turn it on. He can both make you laugh. Like I said, you know, he'd do these rib matches just to get the boys to laugh sometimes. But he's all business where it counts. The night before was the big angle that shoots this thing up to the stars, which is <laughs> Owen has worked it out with a plant carrying 12 pitchers of iced tea so that when Owen, you know, I think Owen jumped on stage was this 97? Yes. I, maybe he jumped on stage because he was the year, he was a Slammy Award winner, made the best out of that situation, really put the onus on everyone who followed up to make their Slammy <laughs> important, became the two time Slammy winner. Carried it to the ring with him. Carried it to the ring with him. And he said, you know, Davey, you might have two titles, but I've got two Slammies. Woo, you know, I'm, I'm a winner. winner. Woo, you know. And then he confronts Leon. Leon doesn't know that a guy's passing by with 12 pitchers of iced tea. Uh, Owen gives the guy a shove, overgo the 12 pitchers of iced tea. And Leon does, makes the worst possible choice, which is he tries to chase Owen. Because uh, Leon doesn't know it's a rib. He tries to chase Owen. He's not going to catch Owen under any circumstance, but especially not when Owen tips a chair over in his path. Leon goes down like a ton of bricks. And at that point, your your TV payoff was $25. You get $25 at that time for TV, unless you were in the, the dark match main event. Leon was in all these dark match main events and couldn't do them because he had tweaked his knee or hurt his knee. So now I'm stepping into dark show, dark uh, match main events, I think with Undertaker. I'm revisiting Taker. I'm working almost every Monday night uh, with Taker. And instead of getting $25, $25, I'm getting more like $2,500. So Leon's loss was my gain for sure. I think Leon could have petitioned the company and said, I'm, a, I'm the scheduled main event. Like, yeah. shouldn't I be getting something out of it? But uh, that was a rib that, well, a little. I thought it was a good rib. And Leon was, again, so hurt. He was a sensitive big guy. I mean, he so hurt his say, feelings. And hurt his feelings and hurt his feelings that I knew about it and didn't tell him. Because you knew. You knew. We could have turned it around. It's like no one turns a rib around on Owen Hart. You know, like you just don't venture there. So I thought it was a good rib. Leon did suffer an injury. I benefited and made about an extra 20, 25 grand because of the rib, uh, which I was grateful for. Really grateful. It's hard to, you know, $25 a night. And who are you to say no? Because it had been done. So the enhancement talent was receiving more. I didn't yeah. know at the time, you know, when we were getting $100 a night, 
in 86 to be WWE Enhancement. I didn't know we were making four times. Yeah, what are the four dogs? Yeah, yeah, right, right. Yeah. So uh, you, you wind up winning the uh, the Loose Screw Award, yep. and you give a speech from Rocky. <laughs> do, do you get to keep the slamming? I sure did, and I wish I hadn't uh, uh, auctioned it off when I did, which was maybe... 15 years ago or 20 years ago, instead of now with the current climate, a slammy would probably be going for about five to 10 times more than what I sold it for. Yeah, maybe I sold it for a grand, you know. Yeah. Um, it'd probably be worth about 10 times that, I'd say. Right, say much, yeah. I don't know what the going rate for a slammy is. Is there a mystique to WrestleMania at this point? I mean, you've wrestled in stadiums, you've wrestled in explosions, you've, I mean, at this point, there's almost nothing you haven't done, but WrestleMania is still WrestleMania. Yeah. You know, here you are, Chicago, or the suburbs of Chicago. It might not be the main event. It might not be exactly what you pick, but do you have any sort of mania jitters? I'm just trying to get through it at this point. I'm just trying to get through it. I'm just, you know, and I'm not swinging for the fences in this one because I just want to have a good match. And I looked through the match about three or four years ago, and it was a good match. Yeah. It wasn't it wasn't a show stealer. It was a good, solid match. Especially plenty of time too, sixteen minutes. Yeah, we had plenty of time. Uh especially when I'm injured, but even in generally speaking, I wasn't as good in tag matches as I thought as I was in singles because uh, the pressure was off. Uh, the same reason why I was a better, I'm not going to strike anybody as a good basketball player now, but the more people were on the court, the less effective I was to the point where I was far better as a one-on-one player or a two-on-two player than I was a five-on-five player because I was a guy who kind of retreat into a little hole in a way if there were other guys there to pick up the slack. And I think even subconsciously, I knew Leon, whether he'd been booked that way or not, was one of the great workers of his generation. It wasn't on you to make the match. It wasn't on me to make the match. And, uh, you know, it was a a drawback for me. Um, And I went on to, you know, be a part of some really good tag teams. But I never felt like I was as effective in that role. Talk to me about the match itself. Is this something that... You and Vader and Davey and Owen would have worked out ahead of time. Y'all would have talked about that day. Probably a combination of both. It wouldn't have been something we drew up weeks in advance. Um, it was basic, but it was good. Um, Is it more agent influence on a WrestleMania? No, I don't think so. I think we were kind of left to our own devices on that. And that was kind of the way it was. Uh, I can't speak for Mania, uh, but I don't. Up until I wrestled Edge in 2006, I don't remember agents being as omnipresent as they were, uh, they would later become, uh, to the point where it was frustrating to have to go through an agent for everything. It really was. Um, But at that point, I, you know, I got Pat would have great input, but he would listen to what you had to say. And you were largely creating it on you were creating it on your own with a little input from agents. When you're running through a match like this, um, do you know the finish before the day of, or does does a referee come to you and say sixteen minutes? We want these guys over. How was that? Yeah, yeah, that's probably. I'm not sure. It'd be the referee telling you? It'd probably be your agent telling you, and then you work from there. Uh, I think it was a 
double count out. Not, yeah. a, not a real satisfying mania. None of us, you know, was looking at that. First of all, WrestleMania moment wasn't even in the lexicon at that time. It wasn't even a thought. You just wanted to have a good match and hope that that was uh, remembered when it came payoff time and hope that the, the powers that be looked at your spot on the card favorably. You're fourth on the show on the actual pay-per-view there. You have 16 minutes and 8 seconds. It is a double count out. Bouncer would say Hart and Smith got a face pop and worked the matches as faces. This was a good match with a lame non-finish, which served to ask the question, what was the purpose of the match? <laughs> Since neither team even teased the turn. That's interesting, yeah. I guess, because I think from a storyline standpoint, you do expect if there's two heel teams, well, we're going to start to love somebody, but that yeah. doesn't really happen. No. But I guess it would have been really difficult to think about Vader and Mankind working as baby faces. Right. And I think the idea at that time was for Leon and I to, I think we were forming a tag team with the idea that it would break up and be the feud that it should have been in WCW. That was what was in my mind at the time was that we were going to work singles together, which I was all for. Because you knew you could have a great match with them. And you probably thought, I can help make people believe in Vader again. I thought, yeah, yeah, yeah. I thought I could. I thought we could take uh, what I thought was a big uh, uh, loss of potential in the ear angle, bring it alive, uh, humanize it. I even had the idea, I think, at one point, not that it's a good idea. uh, It doesn't strike me as being particularly good now, but of having a pig's ear sent to my son in a package like it was... Godfather style. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, and that that was going to set off uh, set off something inside me and being outside uh, the boundaries of decency to bring my family into this thing. So I, I go back to the match and I wonder the same thing. Did you guys wonder when you come through the curtain, what was the purpose? <laughs> what were we trying? I mean, were you happy? With- well, I'm, I'm, I was happy. Uh, you, again, you can't go on a trajectory. The stock market, even a good stock market, ebbs and flows. Of course. I wouldn't say any of us felt like we were a popcorn match because you're really not supposed to have a popcorn match on at Mania. On a 16 minute Yeah, yeah, exactly. But I felt like we did what... It felt good. Yeah. It felt, I was happy. Again, I was really hurting, and I was happy to get out of there in one piece and just put something respectful up on the board. Respectable up on the board. You think Vader, Owen, Davey, everybody was pretty happy with the match when it was over? That's the way you remember it? I think so. Um, right after you is the famous austin Brett I quit match with the double turn. You know, it's a weird thing to ask, but you set the stage earlier where you said, I knew if there was something big, I wanted to be in the crowd. Not saying you were in the crowd, but did you get a chance to watch on a monitor? Or yeah. more about, I got to get this stuff off of me? No, no, no. I think, uh, I know I was watching it live uh, on the monitor. I don't think I wandered out, but this is a case where the monitor only sells out for either the matches that have potential to be really good or really bad. Yeah. And 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 even in 97 when I say mania isn't wasn't then what it is now, you were still having a lot of people who would watch much yeah. more so and we understood that this thing had the potential to be great. And it was pretty obvious within 5 minutes that we were watching something special that night. WCW at the time is putting on tremendous cards. 
But boy, the main event, in a word, sucked. You know, it's going to be Hogan and Piper or something like that. The undercard, though, you're going to get to see Eddie Guerrero's and Chris Benoit's yeah. and Mysterio's. But the rap on the WBF at the time was the undercard may not be awesome, but the main event, yeah. Oof, yeah. they're going to deliver. And I felt like at the time that that match with Bret and Austin was almost like a momentum shifter. Now, that didn't prove out in the ratings. Right. But it certainly felt like, man, there's nobody in WCW who could do what these guys just did. Did you feel the same way at the time? Yeah, uh, I'll, I'll, I know I've asked a few people. Uh, I remember asking Rick Rick Rubin, the producer, if he understood. Uh, he Rick was is still a big wrestling fan. Yeah, I remember asking him if he knew they had something special when Johnny Cash recorded "Hurt," and Rick thought he goes, "Not until the video." The video was is, is almost indelibly linked that you can't even listen to Hurt without thinking of that incredible. I get the the head rush now just thinking about that video, one of the most emotional yeah. music videos ever done. Um, and so it's I love getting a feel for what other people say about magic moments, whether you realize they're happening. And I've talked about the element of magic, and I really believe in that, and that's part of the reason I. I'm grateful that WWE has divided their mania into two nights because it's almost impossible to have that magic moment in a main event at the end of seven hours. It's just beyond the boundaries of (laughs) human endurance, right? It's too much. It's why people needed that breather when I hated being part of it because I knew how hard Seth Rollins and Finn Balor were working and then finding out that Finn had been injured uh, in that three minutes into the match, it still went another 23, and the crowd at SummerSlam started the, this belt is stupid, because it was the reveal of the red yeah. belt. And I will say that in my, you know, now when I go to conventions, all those things, I've probably signed several hundred hardcore titles. The Winged Eagle, I've signed a lot of. I think I've signed that red belt three times. And the 24-7 green belt twice, you know? Yeah. So these belts were not didn't resonate with people. But I think if that match had been on after three hours or two hours instead of at the five-hour mark, uh, the fans wouldn't have reacted. But they just need that. They need to be able to relax and enjoy that. Yeah. Um, but the element of magic has to be there for a match to go from being great to classic and from classic to something that families will specifically hand down to the next generation. I'm just curious as you're watching in the monitor and you see that great visual of Stone Cold trying to push out of the sharpshooter and that blood is streaming down. Me getting to know you makes me think you're probably watching that thinking, man, I know I'm hurting. But I got to have a moment like that. Ooh, I wanted a moment like that. Yeah. And I had not. And the WrestleMania moment would be elusive to me. But at that time, to me, there wasn't a big difference between Mania and and In Your House. It's just as far as pride of ownership. So one month later or three weeks later, I'm in that main event of the In Your House match. And I'm having what I think is a great moment when I go off the apron headfirst. Through the table. What a spot. <laughs> the spot. Never been done before, and I haven't seen it done since. 
Uh, and I was really happy to be, you know, the guy given the task of being Undertaker's first opponent. But yeah. no doubt, I'm, I'm, I'm watching as a fan first and foremost, first and foremost, and a lo- friend of Steve's, and a friend of Steve's. And then there's that, you know, third, but not that far behind is your Jesus man. You know, he's competition for a spot as well. And he's just captured that top spot in the company with a double turn that I never saw coming. Yeah. So, um, you know, I don't know what else there is to talk about this WrestleMania. I mean, what a, what a moment it's going to be to to know the Undertaker is is finally the world champ again, yeah, yeah. and you're going to be his first opponent. That's going to be a story for us to talk about next month. But is there anything else we can cover on WrestleMania 13? Did you go to the after party that year? Oh yeah, yeah. The after party, uh, yeah. The after party again. I keep dwelling on the shrimp cocktail. It was just such high quality and i was never a drinker i remember i would all i would enjoy those did your wife come to this one my wife did not come to this one she was at uh she was at uh survivor series 96 and i was personally offended by the fact that my wife was not allowed to come like backstage it was a no wives rule and then i'm seeing that rule being overlooked for other wives and girlfriends and it bothered me and I let Mr. McMahon know it bothered me um it hurt it hurt me it really hurt me uh it hurt me when uh the family was told we had to like stay in a separate like room backstage in Bangor Maine you know this is a uh, summer of 96 uh, that seemed completely unnecessary to me. And so my wife never felt completely accepted. That stuff hurt her too. Uh, but when I would go to the post-WrestleMania parties, the, it was fun because the guys know that they're I'm not going to hit on their wives. So the wives are in a safe space with me. Right. They can have a couple drinks and they, it was, it was fun to, you know, to, to be part of that and to realize you're in a completely G-rated environment. And they would kind of swoon over me like I was a big deal without, it was just, it was really, it was really sweet. And I always uh, looked at that as a big, um, uh, you know, it's, I looked at it as a point of pride that the guys could, get, you know, could go out and blow off some steam. They're, they're not going to worry about uh, the hardcore legend hitting on their wives, and I always enjoyed the post mania, uh, post mania parties, which is why in 2000, when my wife is going to go, and we're all out there, and it's the end of my career, it was this really is a great dichotomy: the thrill of victory and the agony of defeat. Because I've been in the main event at Mania, I have reason to believe it's going to be a big payoff. I'm not completely comfortable with coming out of retirement four weeks after I, you know, retired and said I would not prostitute my name by coming out of retirement. And in the end, I couldn't make it because I was in too much pain with my, uh, you know, having uh, missed on my elbow and having possibly thought I possibly broke my sternum. So I just remember after Collette got all dressed up, I said, I can't do it. And just uh, there I was after my one and only main event at Mania. And I ended up falling asleep with a 
you know, I had a bag of ice on my chest and the cold water dripping down both sides of my body. I just physically couldn't do it. Made wow. it to Disneyland the next day, <laughs> but couldn't make it to the uh, to the the Postmania party. So, at WrestleMania 13, did you know? I mean, obviously everybody knew the Undertaker was leaving champ, but did you know I'm headlining the next pay per view? I don't think so. Find out the next night at so. Raw. Yeah, I think uh, that's where I was really helped by Vince Russo's influence. Uh, I don't know that for a fact, but I know Vince was somebody who was, you know, a big believer in what I could do. And in, you know, my ability to, to be that guy, I, I don't have all the wins in the world. I don't have a lot of titles to my record, but I'm a certifiable threat, you know, especially given my history with The Undertaker and that we were going to have a good match. We're going to talk about a hell of a match and a follow-up uh, next week. Another rager at WrestleMania moment coming up for Mick. WrestleMania 20 and then the follow-up for it, Backlash 2004. So we've got the Rock and Sock Connection reuniting. Uh, you're going to be working against Randy Orton, Batista, and Ric Flair of Evolution. Of course, Chris Benoit and Eddie Guerrero have their big moment as world champions. But then maybe what I'm more excited to talk about, you and Randy at Backlash in the hardcore match for the Intercontinental title. Pretty pumped about that. But this is the time of the show where we spread a little joy uh, over at Cameo.com forward slash Mick Foley. Definitely not a plug. Not a plug at all. Just a public service announcement. Yeah, just letting people know what's going on. Let me take the phone out here and see what we have. Uh, As a little bonus one day, we need to do a What's in Foley's (laughs) uh, bum bag, I think is what it's called internationally. I still call it the fanny pack. Yeah, there you go. All right. Oh, um, okay. Let me go and see what we have on tap here. Okay. To Sam from Janice, turning 50. Uh, okay. All right. So we've got special memory from my big bro- my brother's big 5 He's a fan of you, Mankind, Cactus Jack, and wrestling. All right. Um, I don't have the Mankind stuff with me, but I do have the dude stuff. He may not think he's a dude fan but i'll turn him into one everybody's so, a dude fan dude all right so let me see what we got here okay this is for uh to sam from his sister janice all right janice okay so let me go i'll go with the green screen and back okay three two one Hello, Sam. This is the hardcore legend Mick Foley on the set of our hit podcast, Sweeping the Nation, uh, the toast from coast to coast uh, with my host with the most, Conrad (laughs) Thompson. And I understand you have a 50th birthday. You are celebrating on March 6th. This comes to you. Wait, maybe we should do this over. So, no, it's fine. Okay. I understand you have a birthday. You are celebrating the big five zero, not just any birthday. And this is a special memory. Uh, Janice tells me that you are a huge fan of Mankind, Cactus Jack, and wrestling. And you've been a very supportive brother and an awesome uncle to Janice's two children. Uh, you are a great uncle, a movie buff. A gamer, a board and video, smarty pants of the family. It's not just from Janice, from Janice, Amanda, Landon, Asher, and Mom. They all love you. As much as you love Mankind and Cactus Jack, they couldn't be here today. Uh, and you specifically left out the third face of Foley, but he's the one that I think is most suitable 
for this uh, video because we're going to take a, a stroll down memory lane for you and my next guest who is going to give to you his gift of song. So may I introduce to you the hippest cat in all the land. He is... <laughs> Ow. Dude love daddy, not dude love daddy, but dude love comma daddy. Yes, indeed, the big five zero. And I just want you to know, age, it's just a number. Why this hip cat knows for a fact, Jack, he was every bit as happening at nifty 50 as he was at flirty 30. And now, as long as those little nephews ears are not listening, may I tell you, still getting my kicks at age 56, daddy. And so it's with that in mind that I tell you, you are only as young as you feel. And now Dude Love is going to take you on a little musical journey, a cappella going like this. And now the time draws near as you face your anniversary. Oh, Sam, it's been 50 years since that first night inside the nursery. You've lived a life that's cool since you began your fateful Earth Day. But now, oh, much more than this, today's your birthday. Your times, I hope they're nice, of fun-filled days with joyful meetings. This is your overpriced but customized dude love a greeting. Janice, she planned this gift not in a frankincense, a myrrh or a cold or myrrhway. Oh no, she bought you this. It's for your birthday. Do love here. Send you blessings of peace. Oh, love and understanding the heartfelt hope that this is the jolliest, the holliest, the merriest, the grooviest, most laid back birthday in the history of mankind. Ow. Have mercy. Oh, my goodness. Uh, <laughs> it's not a dry eye in the room. Dude does Sinatra and does it well. Oh, man. Sam. <laughs> I hope you're as happy with this as I am. Uh, you are live on Folia's Pod, and this has been a great joy to bring this to you. May all your days be nice. There How about go. that? A little round of applause. <laughs> Book it right now. Somebody in your life, the wrestling fan in your yeah, life, wants to hear from do it. You can see I like doing it, right? Yeah. This is where, um, look, we just said amazing things about Bret Hart. I don't think Brett enjoys doing the cameos. Not as much as, as you much do. As I do, right? I don't think, and hopefully that joy is infectious. So that's my feeling. If you know somebody loves doing it, as I do, uh, it just means a little something. I'm not saying you choose the hitman over the hardcore legend, just saying I think I enjoy doing them more I, than I, I think probably more than anybody out there. Pride of ownership, you've yeah, talked about yeah. before, and you own In Your House and you own Cameo Daddy. Mr. In Your House. Yeah. Come on. Next week, though, we're going to be in your house talking WrestleMania 20 and Backlash 04 right here on Foley's Pod. Love it. See you next week.